Hello and welcome to The 250, your weekly podcast looking at the IMDb's top 250 movies of all time. I'm your host, Darren Mooney, and joining me as always is my co-host, Andrew Quinn. Hello. And this week we have a special guest, Dr. Bernice Murphy, who is joining us again after last year's Halloween special. Hi, it's lovely to be here. Um, so what we're going to do this week is we're talking about The Exorcist, generally regarded as one of the best informative horror movies ever. And I think just about fitting Andrew's qualifications for a Halloween so. movie. Does I believe, it? I believe this does qualify. Yeah. <laughs> just, just about to the rules of gerrymandering. Does it, it has ghosts in it. Yeah. It's got a sort of like a classic horror story sensibility going on there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely. I mean, this, 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 this is like right in that wheelhouse. Yeah. Um, but yes. So do we remember the first time that we saw The Exorcist, actually? Because this is kind of, this is a big film in terms of like, you know, like monumental ones. It's not, it's a 1973 film. It's, it's William Friedkin coming directly off the French Connection and going into Sorcerer. This is kind of like, and I remember when I was a kid, Obviously, in Ireland in particular, there was a lot of excitement around The Exorcist because it, was, it wasn't it was banned in inverted commas, but I don't believe it had been classified by the film board and so was unavailable in Ireland for a large period of time, I think from the mid-80s through yeah. to the late 90s. So, like, when I was a kid, seeing The Exorcist was this sort of, like, taboo thing. Uh, but do we remember when we first saw it? When did you first see it, Bernice? I first saw it, it must have been 1985, because 1985, 1995, um, it was released in cinemas again. And I was 18 or so. And I remember our whole family <laughs> went. <laughs> so it's a lot about my wonderful family. We went to see The Exorcist as a family because my parents had been going on about it for 20 years. They had gone to see it when it first came out in Dundalk. And local priests used to have a lot of um, say in what films got shown in the locality. And it was actually banned in, in the local cinema. So they went up to Dundalk to see it in this, or Dublin to see it in the Savoy about four times because the queues, <laughs> the queues were that big because, of course... Uh, once the priest said it, you shouldn't go and see it, everyone was like, well, I've got to go and see that. Yeah, because so. this is one of the interesting things about The Exorcist is that it has this weird kind of push and pull uh, reputation, particularly its relationship with religion and Catholicism. Um, Noel Murray, who writes at the Dissolve in the AV Club, has talked about the paradox of people from his childhood who wouldn't go see Jurassic Park because he grew up in a very religious community. They wouldn't go see Jurassic Park because that was based on heresy and it contradicted the Bible. But they what? loved... Sorry, where is he from? He was from the Deep South. Oh, okay. Right. Uh, n- not of Ireland. No. Okay, yeah, yeah. But it, it, it does it... Does it, does it um, what? Um, so it, it contradicts the Bible. Because they don't have the, the, um, the amber or the <laughs> mosquito gets caught in it and the dinosaurs. and Because Jeff Goldblum is ungodly. Exactly. <laughs> He's too sexy. With, with, with the shirt, that. with the open shirt yeah. and the lounging yeah. round. Can't. God I can't permit it. Man, man <laughs> too sexy for God. Yeah. Um, but like, despite this sort of like push and pull, he would say that like, they would love to go and see The Exorcist because it had this sort of like exotic quality to it. But also because um, the writer of it, Blatty, he was actually a prominent uh, kind of Catholic sort of voice. He had studied at Georgetown, which is featured prominently in the film. The film involved actually, one of the, the minor roles actually played by a real priest if I remember correctly as well. Mm. Um, the It's the priest who plays the piano at the party. Great party! Um, <laughs> but like, who gives the last rites at the end. Yeah. yeah. Um, and who sort of provides closure as well. And there's some, like some priests have actually recommended The Exorcist as a kind of a cautionary it's tale. pure propaganda. Yeah. Uh, apparently enlistments, whatever the term is, to the Catholic Church rose significantly in the years afterwards. Like the Sands of the Lambs that we did last time on the FBI. Yeah. It was the greatest work And Top Gun in the Air Force. <laughs> they should, the Catholic Church needs another exorcist because they need good propaganda for them for obvious reasons. <laughs> Maybe we'll get into that with the heretic. But... Uh, <laughs> 
They may not need good propaganda for anything but the fact that heretic exists. It's <laughs> profoundly pro-Catholic and it's it's a very, very conservative um, vindication of the church. Which it's, it's really a misunderstanding, I think, in some audiences to think that it's anything other than that. Yeah, because I mean, it, it, it's been argued that The Exorcist is the most Catholic movie ever made. And the fact that it exists, uh, it you know, it, it's seen as being a representation of America to a certain extent, making peace with like Kennedy as a president, the acceptance of Catholics, because there was a while before Kennedy was elected where it was like America would never elect a Catholic president. And around the time the Exodus came out, you had uh, like various prominent intellectuals, including say Buckley, I think, was also like a prominent Catholic as well. So you had this sort of like idea of kind of Catholic values seeping into the mainstream, and the Exorcist was part of that. Mm. Which is kind of interesting as well. Um, and, and you're right when you say, like, you talk about the hype and going to see it four times. Um, going back and reading, like, the coverage of the release of The Exodus, and it's it's great because a lot of the coverage is, like, almost a parody of modern, like, film journalism, where you have critics from prominent newspapers who are like, this film is trashy and nonsense and not very well made. Why are people going to see this? Like you had like on the ground reporting of people standing in queues. The New York Times would send a reporter to queues that would be going around the block to see screenings of The Exorcist, asking people, why are you going to see this crap film? <laughs> um, which is kind of, it was a phenomenon. Um, but yeah, Andrew, when did you see it? I, I remember it like it was yesterday. Was it literally <laughs> yesterday? <laughs> no, it was back in, at the end of September. <laughs> Of course, this is late October, right? It is indeed. It is Brex Def Brexit's been completely resolved <laughs> to everyone's <laughs> satisfaction. Um, yeah, thank God nothing has happened that will date this podcast whatsoever. Um, no, no. Donald Trump's doing really well. <laughs> yeah. Winning. Yeah, winning. Um, sorry, that's Charlie Sheen. Um, very, very easy to complete the two. But yeah, so that was the first time you'd seen it. Uh, yes, yeah, that was. Oh, um, wow. Yeah. How'd you avoid it all these years? I have no idea. I, I, I don't have a great kind of a thirst for um, horror movies, but this should have kind of, this should probably have drawn me on its own. Kind of, uh, as like not, um, as somebody who, 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 who isn't, I'm, I'm not, I'm, it, it's, it's, it's not, it's not that I um, dislike the genre. It's that I don't kind of have the um, kind of same uh, draw to it, I guess. Yeah, that's, that's I don't true. seek out um, um, horror movies, but I, I would imagine, like, I, I would have, yeah, I would have imagined I would have watched it just when seeking out good movies. Mm. <laughs> well, because that's the thing is that I... But I hadn't seen it before, no. I remember I would have been, again, I don't know if I saw it in 95, but I would have been a kid around that time. You would have seen a lot of these horror movies. Well, that's it, exactly. Yeah. Well, I would have seen, I would have seen the ones that my granddad showed me. So I would have and seen the like Hammer The Shining Horrors. and the, the Hammer Horrors. The Devil Devil Rides Out, for example, was always a family favourite. Uh, good, wholesome, moony. Again, yeah. family, family are great. actually. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but the thing with The Exorcist was, well, first of all, it wasn't available for a lot of my childhood. Um and even people like my mother uh, would have been sort of wary of it. Mm. Um, and yeah. we talked, well, we talked a little bit about how my mother hates horror films after watching The Shining. That was enough for her. She saw The Shining, and that was like, I'm done. That's a I good mean. one to traumatize you, though. You <laughs> yeah. know. Well, she she was in Belgium at the time all by herself and had to walk home alone afterwards. So oh, apparently, man. that was one of the uh, the memories From that she Belgium. <laughs> it was a long commute, <laughs> and the interrail wasn't really functioning at that time either. No. Uh, I read somewhere. 
as I did a little bit of preparation for this podcast because I'm a professional, that <laughs> Jack Nicholson was apparently considered for the role of Father Carras. So I was trying to imagine your mother <laughs> having that reaction. Jack Nicholson <laughs> and the Exorcist, and he would have been awful. Oh my God, could you imagine? Sorry. <laughs> your mother would have been even more traumatized, traumatized by yeah. the experience. Well, I mean, I feel like without getting too spoiler, the ending might have been very satisfying for her, perhaps. Yeah. Um, um, <laughs> Worked through a lot of stuff. Yeah, worked through a lot of sort of stuff there. But yeah, it had this sort of like taboo quality to it. So when it came out, I, don't, I wouldn't have seen it in cinemas. So probably when it came out in home video, 96, 97, I watched it. And I remember being relatively underwhelmed by I it. I was underwhelmed as well, actually. I think because it had such a reputation um, and I expected something a lot more full on I guess and yeah. it was only really in later years when I watched it again maybe in a less hyped up kind of situation that yeah. I grew to really particularly love the first hour or so where yeah. it's so slow and gradual and careful in its build up and I think as an 18 year old I was you know let's get to the fireworks factory <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> when's the head going to yeah, spin if you're only going to see it for the head spinning stuff that's the stuff that looks really dated yeah I mean it was amazing for the time but it's incredibly dated and it's been parodied that often that yeah. you're sort of laughing at it but yeah it's the bits around it that are which are actually like 80% of the film that I think are just tremendous. Yeah. It is a really slow build-up though. Really I was slow. astonished by it because when I uh, put it on, um, I was thinking, is this The Exorcist? <laughs> um, sure, there, there are priests in it. Yeah, is there another movie called The Exorcist <laughs> that, I, that I've rented instead and that I'm now watching? And then I saw kind of like Max von Sydow and I was kind of like, oh, and by the way. Oh, yeah. We'll talk about the intro as well. I thought, I, I thought that I, I, for some reason, I, what, what made me think as well that it wasn't The Exorcist is for some reason, I thought Gregory Peck was in The Exorcist. Oh, you're thinking of The Omen, I think. Yes. I must be thinking of yeah. The Omen. I mean, it's the same wheelhouse. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The other big Catholic movies. horror franchise. Yeah. Together in my mind. Is he a priest in that? No, no he's, he's a, a father. father. It's Patrick Troughton is the priest. Oh, okay. He's a US ambassador to the court of St. James. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it's very no. much post exorcist like i don't think it would have been made and yeah. if the actual you wouldn't have gregory peck in a horror film unless the right. exorcist had been the yeah. highest grossing or rated movie of all time including adjusted for inflation what is it 79 or, or 80 maybe but it's a couple of years like it clearly the, got green lighted as a result yeah, yeah it's like well i mean well, we'll talk about this when we talk about the heretic where the heretic was opening the sequel to the Do exorcist we have to talk about the heretic <laughs> <laughs> Well, I'm afraid we scheduled it for next week. Um, it's, if, if you're happy to talk about another bad movie. Um, but uh, also, like, even then it was opening opposite, like, Exorcist-themed movies. There was, like, Christopher Walken was considered for the role, in the lead role, the Richard Bruton, Richard Burton role in The oh. Heretic. Yeah, I know, it would have been amazing. Wow, yeah. Um, but he was, he was busy doing another exorcism movie at the same time. And it was just Hollywood was kind of chock-a-block because this was huge. And I think you're onto something there when you say that, like, one of the issues coming to The Exorcist as, you know, somebody 20 years removed from it is that I had already seen everything that the movie had done, like parodied yeah. and sort of done to he- literally to hell and back. And if you're a kid in the 90s, you saw Repossessed, which is actually yes. better than Heretic. Second best Linda Blair probably literally seen a parody of it, yeah. you know? Uh, or even like Sunday Night Live with Richard Pryor as a priest and that sort of stuff. And there's a whole host of stuff. Even the horror movies that kind of are riffing on The Exorcist yeah. and maybe even pushing a little bit further than The Exorcist in some sense. Because that was my... I should say apologies to the listeners. Um, oh, we are eating on mic. Well, I am. Yeah. Or no, I shouldn't say it's me. Cut that part out. Yeah. No, no admission. <laughs> Never apologize, Andrew. But uh, yeah, so it, and it's it's... 
you've watched horror movies build on what The Exorcist has done. So going back and watching as a kid, that stuff did seem quaint. And you're right that the special effects haven't aged well. Like, I mean, you know, we're going to talk in more depth in the spoiler zone, but it's it spoils nothing to say that, like, there's a bed rocking, for example. And it looks like something from a theme park ride yeah. now. Um, or even, even scenes that are meant to be harrowing and horrifying, that are meant to evoke, like, assault and sort of, like, violence, look almost cartoonish because of the, you can see the speed cranking, because you've seen so many movies that do that sort of thing now. Um, but that said, like, in the years since, I've kind of mellowed a bit on it. And I still am not convinced The Exorcist is a great horror film. <gasps> I know. I know. This is just blowing Andrew Quinn's sort of like uh, Halloween theory right out the water. <laughs> I think it's a fantastic kind of 70s kind of drama, like a family drama. I think it works really well as this sort of like exploration of big thematic ideas. But can't it be both? Ah, yeah. Elevated horror. Uh, oh, don't get me started in that nonsense. Uh, yeah, we'll talk. Just lazy horror bloggers. Oh, how do I rile up the community? Yeah, we're not going to talk about The Heretic next week. We're going to talk about Hereditary next week. <laughs> I love, or can I just say, Midsummer is my favourite film this year so far. Oh, interesting. Yeah, and I laughed my head off at the ending. I don't know what that says about me or my romantic relationships, but I just I thought it was amazing. Okay, I was worried you'd find it unbearable. Oh. <laughs> Sorry. Um, Midsummer-related puns. Um, but yeah, so I guess then, before we talk about the film that we're death, we asked sort of three questions going in. Um, and so, Bernice, to start off, do you think The Exorcist uh, belongs on a list of the 250 greatest movies ever made? Oh, absolutely. I think it, and not least because it's such a game changer for the genre. I mean, we'd probably get into this, but um, I think it's a, a very, a few bits aside, I think it holds up really well as a very intelligently uh, nuanced made film. Sorry. <laughs> I've just taken a migraine tablet. Um, a, a very intelligent and nuanced film with some tremendous performances. But it's also, it, it, it does for the horror genre in the 70s what Psycho did in, in the early 60s. It's a jolt in the arm. It, I think um, it, it makes mainstream horror, uh, I would say, respectable. Um, and I think... It's a blockbuster. It's, like it, it's, absolutely. It's a genuine blockbuster. It's yeah. the horror equivalent of Star Wars. And I think it's just, it, it also, I mean, this is something we can maybe talk about later on. In a, in a uh, sort of a, a wider cultural sense, it actually plays a really important accidental role in the satanic panic of yeah. the 1980s and yes, yeah. um, that a lot of these uh, supposedly true accounts are directly ripped off from The Exorcist and from films inspired by The Exorcist so it had a, in that respect a really unfortunate and quite uh, tragic in some cases knock-on effect yeah. in, in the culture yeah I'd agree with that it's interesting that you should mention like Jaws and Star Wars and blockbusters like, Freakin was one of those sort of it was, was it the Gang of Five um, those big directors who yeah, came up New Hollywood that's it exactly and it's interesting that Friedkin you know, has arguably had the, you know, the perhaps the biggest fall since his peak in the 70s because he's ended up, he directed episodes of CSI. That's where Friedkin is today. Um, I think he's done better, though, in a way than De Palma in that Friedkin had a bit of a mini revival, didn't he, a few years with ago? With Killer, Killer Joe. Joe and yeah. uh, I, there's one called Bug, which I just I think is Bug. fantastic. It's essentially two people going crazy in a motel room and it's really, really good. But I don't think many people have, you're, yeah. I mean, he's certainly not got the stature that he once did. Yeah. But he's still making good films whereas Brian De Palma <laughs> careful we'll get the De Palma fans <laughs> on us um, forget him huge fan of De Palma in the 70s actually uh, yeah. really love like The Fury is one of my favourite psychic power films yeah, yeah. Um, but it's interesting because Friedkin 
when that stuff was happening with Spielberg and Lucas, apparently Friedkin was the guy who was raising his voice against it. He didn't see what the fuss was about with Jaws. And he thought that there, everybody was wasting their time helping Lucas with Star Wars, which is kind of funny in hindsight. Because um, I kind of wonder if maybe that's what Friedkin, why Friedkin went the way that he did, because he didn't embrace that. You know, he kind of, he pushed off and did his kind of esoteric films. And I think To Live and Die in LA, for example, is one of the great mm. Los Angeles movies. I think like a lot of his work is fantastic. It's, you know, I'm kind of a little bit sad that we're talking about The Exorcist and not The French Connection or Sorcerer either side of it, which says something about the quality of those films more than the quality of The Exorcist. Um, but yeah, it's kind of, it's interesting. It's interesting to note in that sense. But Andrew, what about yourself? Do you think this belongs on the list of the 250 greatest films ever made? Having only seen it last month. <laughs> Well, I um, I believe that um, horror movies deserve to be on the list. Yeah. I think they should be represented. And I disagree with you um, that, that it wasn't kind of, um, that it didn't work as a horror. That it wasn't scary. I wasn't scared as such in the sense of like frightened during it. But um, going to bed... Really? I, yeah, I the, 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 a remarkable kind of um, kind of flashing of of. Did you uh, see a Im- face, images. a white face against a black background? Yeah, suddenly. yeah, yeah, yeah. I, 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 I genuinely had um, that reaction. Now it didn't keep me up because nothing can keep me up. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, um, but I, I the real it, horror is next. It just listeners. started to happen, and I was like, oh, interesting, because I wasn't kind of in control of yeah. it. The, the 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 movie had. Um, kind of imprinted something very um, sort of significant that was replaying in my mind. <laughs> very primal, because it, it is yeah. very archetypal. Like, I mean, it's, it's yes. kind of... I mean, you know, the film opens in northern Iraq without getting too specific or too spoilery, and it has this kind of broader context, and there's all this stuff that's happening in it, which... I think it's very good in horror where it doesn't necessarily make sense in terms of plot, but it, it works on a primal level. It's all about yeah. the atmosphere, isn't yeah. it? It's just got a tremendous atmosphere. I keep yeah. using the word tremendous. I apologize. I'm going to stop. But <laughs> I think you use a tremendous is tremendous. Is tremendous. <laughs> yeah. um, it, it has got this sense of um, uh, that you're in a world where it's our world, but everything's just something slightly but wrong, maybe, a sense of wrongness from the start. Ma- the maybe our is world really is wrong, good. though. It's, it's the thing that I really well, like about I it. I mean, yeah, obviously these days. <laughs> <laughs> That's, I think, the strength of its horror as well, is the kind of mysterious, enigmatic kind of nature of it. That if we're going to be talking next week, it's kind of, for anyone who is left unsatisfied with the kind of mystery and enigma of this movie. um, We'll have a recommendation at the end of this podcast for you. Yeah, yeah. But but that's... um, That that really, really adds to it because it, it gives you this sense... Um, that's very kind of like relatable is that there is something kind of wrong here like in yeah. in, in this world something is off it is a and bad you can't vibe quite, yeah, yeah. yeah you can't quite yeah. put your finger on what it is exactly exactly yeah yeah yeah, yeah. which is which is which is which is really really powerful yeah I, I would agree with that i think that the film needs more horror films on it um not just the because list? yeah the list sorry the, i think the list needs more horror films on it apologies i think the list needs more horror films on it because you know well, we've got a number of Halloweens left to go on this podcast. Now, and, and, I think yeah. the list also needs less movies. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. We need to up the, the ratio of horrors and down the number of movies in general. Uh, this might be an unfair question because you mightn't have the data to hand, but uh, what proportion of the films at the moment are actually could be considered horrors? There? Well, this is this is the point of discussion between myself and Andrew. So when, An- when we were setting out to do this, Andrew's like, what are we going to do at Halloween? I sent Andrew a list of films <laughs> that I considered horror films on the list. Those films included, so Psycho to pick an example, 
Alien, to pick an example. Um, this, The Thing, The Shining. And that was really about it as far as horror cinema goes. No, Maybe The Sixth Sense. And nothing non-American, of course. That's it, exactly, yeah. yeah. Um, nothing foreign. The Ring isn't on there, to pick an example. Oh, no Japanese. Yeah. yeah. Which is something that I really, really like to see. Um, but yeah, Andrew was like, half of those aren't horror films. No, and it was like, uh, and I haven't seen The Exorcist or The Thing. <laughs> well, no, no, no. I said, um, I think I was like, um, Sh- Shining and The uh, Thing. Yeah. Um, Having not seen The Thing at the time, as I recall. You didn't know that. No, though. I didn't know that. You got a very good poker <laughs> face. Like, the Thing sounds like a <laughs> Halloween movie. Yeah. Therefore, yeah. <laughs> I was watching it and it's like, oh, so it's an alien. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, and, uh, and although I had seen that, um, um, Pingu, what, Thingu, Thing, Thingu, yeah, yeah, Thingu, yeah. <laughs> so um, I should have known. Maybe. But yeah, so it, horror is very underrepresented as a genre. Arguably, it is somewhat overrepresented on the bottom one hundred, paradoxically. Ah. Uh, including, it is. Yeah, including films. We've already seen a few. Yeah, well, we will be seeing a few. Yes. I, we we have already seen Slender Man and Open House. We have indeed. And and in the next couple of weeks, we'll have some Uwe Ball films coming oh. as well for listeners. Delectation. Do you want to be responsible for spreading that in the world, though? <laughs> it's like a dangerous idea. Yeah. Um, uh, <laughs> those aren't the worst films that we've seen for this podcast. Um but yeah, okay. We, then. We've spoken about another <laughs> terrible movie that we've seen for this podcast. Yeah. Um, but more on that next week. Um, for myself, I yes, yeah, so that'll be it. I think it belongs on the list. I'm glad to see it there. Um, and I think it has, as Bernice pointed out, a huge place in cultural history as well. And so it's worth acknowledging and celebrating. Second question, would it be on your own personal list, your own favorite 250 films? Because we know that everybody keeps those to hand, right? Oh, yeah, because, of course, my 250 list is about 80% horror, probably. <laughs> <laughs> so you can't nod at The Exorcist there. Definitely, yeah. I, would, I would have it there. And Andrew, I know having just watched it last month. Um, yeah, yeah, it's difficult. <laughs> you to had a full month to kind of think yeah. about it. And I suppose if, if, if it was my um, 250, it might be difficult to put um, uh, much horror. And yeah. as I say, I don't have any problem with the genre. Yeah. Um, it's just that the... the the uh, I suppose the yeah I, I, I suppose I don't go to a movie to 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 be um, scared uh, to be scared but I'm impressed when when a movie can do it yeah. which, which this movie does but but as I say yeah it's not my kind of um it's 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 not my thing yeah. I suppose yeah I kind of I kind of come down more on Andrew's side and that I don't think it would make my own personal list I would have more horror on it I'm a bigger horror fan but I'd probably but not go. This. Not this. On, um, on your own? On my own, no. If I, I'd probably, again, this is the thing where I'm like, if it was a freaking film, I'd rather have something like Deliver Die in LA or Sorcerer or, you know, sort of The French Connection or some combination of those. But if I, it was a horror film, you know. So you'd have some combination <laughs> of those on your, on, on, on your 250. Yeah. So a, a movie that's this part that's just French cut together yeah. and deliver Dino. Like the car chase sequences are amazing. <laughs> I've started editing the, my own movies for my own 250. Uh, but even then, if I was putting on horror, I'd probably put movies that affected me personally on my own list. Mm. So things like seeing Ringu at the age of 12, um, right. something that affected me profoundly or something like seeing The Shining at the age of eight was something that kind of like affected me profoundly. The Exorcist didn't have that, and I know that's as much, you know, it's not the film's fault for that, but it, I don't have that connection to it, you know? I suppose if, if I were going to go on that basis, I'd probably put Audition. Oh, Audition, yeah, Audition is very, yeah, yeah Audition. Um, oh, Audition's 
Oh, brilliant. Audition yeah. gave me nightmares for weeks and weeks because it's great. It's yeah. so upsetting. Yeah. So, yeah. So, so upsetting. So, and it's great because... So many people walked out in the screening I was at. It's the IFI and... <laughs> I think people went so they could walk out, but people walked out before the before the reveal, before the twist. Yeah, 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 it was the the feeding vomit bit that a lot of people were like, "Nope." Yeah, (laughs) 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 I'm done. The thing, the great, great again, we're not in the spoiler zone, but the great thing about audition is that it starts out as a different kind of movie and then turns. It's a rom com. Yeah, that's it. It's like when 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 Harry met Sally, sort of thing, and then becomes this thing that is kind of hard to describe. And I remember because I watched. When I was 12, I convinced my parents to put a TV in my bedroom. Um, and I was like, I promise I won't stay up late. I won't watch anything inappropriate. Yeah. The first Monday night that it was there, <laughs> Channel 4 started their Japanese horror season. So the first movie 12-year-old Darren watched was The Ring, which features a killer that crawls through the television set. The series introduced by Mark Kermode. Yes, That's I when I first saw The Ring. It scared the absolute... I watched it on my own in an yeah. empty house and I was in bits. Oh yeah, no, I... I, I so well done. I put a chair against the wardrobe wall that night. Um, but the, uh, the Exorcist's Mark Kermode as well. Didn't yes. he write his, his he wrote doctoral his book, uh, thesis? thesis or his and he's book. written a book as well yeah. about it One for the, the BFI. BFI yeah, and the documentary as well, The Fear of God. Yeah. And he considers it his, his favourite movie of all time. Um, mm. um, and in fact, I think Mayo's joke that every time Kermode invites him over to watch a movie. <laughs> Mayo dreads that it's going to be the exorcist um, just by law of probability but um yeah it, it, and then even like so I watched the ring and it terrified me as a kid and then I was like I spent a whole week getting over the ring and it was like okay Monday night channel four Japanese horror season audition yeah um, and it was like okay if you thought the ring was upsetting <laughs> yeah, yeah. And uh, um, is it Ryu uh, Morikami who, who writes? Um, yeah, he did audition. Yeah, yeah. I picked up what I, I had a girlfriend one time who was reading another book of his. I picked it up and opened it on like a random page. It was almost transparent blue, and it was um, really, really upsetting. Um, and, uh, yeah, he even just, without context. No, <laughs> you just like, random he, page. He, just like... he, he just seems to have a knack for. Like the the disgusting kind of upsetting, um, yeah. He's got a great a great uh, slash for tremendously upsetting book called uh, Piercing, which is just made into a film, which I think is now on Netflix. And if you like that kind of thing, <laughs> <laughs> it involves ice picks, and uh, it's it's I would highly recommend it. If with the caveat, you know, <laughs> if you're into that sort of, I thing. want to warn you what you're getting <laughs> yeah. into. Um, yeah. uh, and that's, that's the uh, like trigger warning for the I guess the Trotsky family or. Um, <laughs> uh, Uh, And again, this then nicely brings us to our final question. And I suspect this will probably be unanimous round. But uh, Bernice, if people haven't seen The Exorcist yet, and keep in mind it's coming up to Halloween, is The Exorcist kind of, would you recommend people watch it? Is it the perfect Halloween film? Is it a, you know, a good scare movie? Um, I would recommend it. I think particularly for anyone who's remotely interested in the genre who hasn't had a chance to see it. Should, should definitely seek it out. I'm very much of the opinion that, you know, you should never force people to watch horror if they're yeah. not, not that into it. And I think that it's, it's probably unlikely that a modern day audience would be quite as... Profoundly affected very, by Yeah, it. very sort of upset by it in maybe the same kind of theological way and yeah. a moral way that some people were at the time. Because, I mean, we'll um, include some videos in the show notes. Like, the press coverage of this was... Again, and this happens every time there's a you know big horror movie. I think it even happened with Midsummer earlier in the year. We have these stories of people fainting and having to be escorted out of screenings. And ironically enough, sort of projectile vomiting. I don't know whether that's kind of, like... In, in sympathy with the film or whatever but these stories about like people projectile vomiting in the cinema in response to what they're seeing and yeah. stuff 
um, it, it's fascinating to watch and it's kind of it's, it's interesting that that still happens when we talk about films well all you take is I mean a famous example of the French film uh, Raw which was out uh, two years ago Trem- yeah. really tremendous what is wrong with me an amazing film by a female director very, a very it's the one about me it's yeah, one yeah. about a young yeah. girl who's a vegetarian goes to college has and a weird hazing case. ritual and then starts craving meat yeah. and you can kind of tell where it's going but it's, <laughs> it's very well made but you had one incident at one festival where someone passed out at like a 12 o'clock screening yeah. and it is it's quite a I'm quite squeamish about food and vomit related things on films I can't watch that I had to watch bits of Raw with my hand covering my eyes but all it takes is one. It, like, it's great yeah. publicity for the film company. That's it, exactly. Like, it's, it's in their best interest to go... This horror is so scary that yeah. you can't possibly it stand it. It happens every couple of years. Hereditary had yeah. it, you know, a few years ago as well. It's just... It's, it's as old as, like, William Castle was up to that kind of thing in the 50s. It's, yeah. you know. Um, and... It's the projectile vomit challenge. <laughs> <laughs> that was like, the sort of, like, viral social media. Yeah, yeah. And then they'd ask their friends to do it. Um, yeah. But what about yourself? in the 70s. They, yeah, uh, social media myself, wasn't quite where it was. recommend people watch yes. it? Yes, yes, yeah, I would. Um, I I really enjoyed this. That was a great movie. Um, and um, yeah, it's it's a it's it's a classic. Like like you you be there. Sorry, as I say, there were parts good that I was watching at uh, tour um, at the beginning. And I think I'd also, as as I said earlier, confuse it with the omen. So, so, so there were some parts that were kind of unfamiliar. All right, but but yeah, the the um, uh, if people have not seen it already, um, I I recommend they go they go see it. I guess if people have seen it already, go see it as well. Well, yeah, I, I'd agree with that then. So join us on the other side of the spoiler zone. So, Bernice, what is The Exorcist about for you? Um, no pressure. <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're only defining one of the classics of horror cinema. Um, it is about a priest who is losing his faith and a young girl who's used as a kind of a spiritual booby trap to bring him to Satan or to God. That is how I would analyze that. I think it's really it's all about the priests. I think the, yeah. the, the little girl, I wouldn't quite say she's a red herring. But I think that it is. It starts with priests. It ends with priests. The hero is a priest. It's, it's, it's a very priestly film. Um, in a basic plot level, did you want me to? No, 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 no. no, no, no. Just sort of thematically, I mean, yeah, I meant, like people have watched the movie. Hopefully, at this point. Thematically, it's all about Father Damien Cross. Yeah. It's uh, you know, I mean, Regan is is obviously a significant character, and I think her mum is a very uh, Chris McNeil, the wonderful Ellen Burstyn, yeah. is very significant. But really, it's all about him and his crisis of faith and guilt. And uh, finding God or leaving God. Yeah, because it's, it's that, that sense of living in a godless kind of world to a certain extent. A world in the novel, they have a lot about this idea that clearly Blatty is very invested in that the modern world is having a nervous breakdown. Yeah. That there's this catastrophic sort of breakdown and that's been reflected in the priest's kind of breakdown of faith. And... Well, because it's, it's interesting because Blatty, and it's ironic because now he's best known for The Exorcist. And he also directed Exorcist 3, which we may be recommending next yeah, week. I don't know. Which to his credit is, has got some crack and sequences. Yeah. Much better film than 2. Yeah. Um, not, not to not talk too much about it. Yeah, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but um, the thing, the thing about uh, Blatty is that he was known as a humorist beforehand. Um, and in fact, actually, Andrew will probably appreciate this. He used to have a routine when he was in college where he would pretend to be, I think it was a Saudi prince, um, <laughs> in order to get in order it's to Lebanese. Isn't oh, it? Lebanese. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, yeah. Um, oh, sorry, but he but must have. Yeah. Yeah, could still have been pretending to be a Saudi. Well, he was pretending to be some sort of Middle Eastern royalty, sort of extended sort of family member, and going to nightclubs and just seeing what people would do in order to impress him. 
Um, <laughs> I knew Andrew would kind of appreciate that. And it's kind of interesting that he's been so supplanted, so sort of like defined by The Exorcist as a result of that, to the point where nobody sees him as a funny writer anymore. I think Ira Levin actually had a, I mean, he wrote thrillers, but he wrote a lot of stuff for Broadway that people have kind of forgotten about now. So I actually think they're very similar figures in some respects, yeah. Levin and Vladdy, uh, in terms of what they do for the, the genre, horror the genre. Um, but yeah, the thing that really strikes me about The Exorcist, and again, this is the thing where I've started out by putting Exorcist fans on the back of by saying, is it really that scary? But one of the things I really love about it is the sound design, the production design. Because it. it really, it's this thing that you mentioned, the world having a nervous breakdown. Yeah. That's really captured in the way the film uses sound, where you have this constant clattering and noise on the soundtrack, the point where when silence occurs. Right from the start, you've got that yeah. sort of... I can't do it, but <laughs> it's like a, that. It's become kind of a cliche now, like eerie chorals in the back. Yes. Like Midsummer does it really well as well, but it's such a shorthand way of freaking people out. Yeah, and and even you just like create the... a really great template here <laughs> that you could take and make another good movie with. <laughs> I think a lot of people have tried to do the same thing since. Yeah. yeah. But well, that's the thing, and like even, but the thing is that the noise is like it's this cacophony of modern living. So even like even in northern Iraq, which is like far removed from the film setting of Washington D.C., which is the kind of opening prologue, you have the sound of like the metal chinking against the rock in almost in rhythm. You have the scenes where he's going to the marketplace and everything's happening around him. Even when he's walking down the street and is almost hit by the carriage, which kind of sounds a bit like the train sequence with Karis kind of later on. I, you, I like the cranking, by the way. Like the the the, the way the the. The um, I prefer kind of these older um, horror movies where things feel a little bit kind of uncanny or yeah, whatever, so. yeah, as opposed wrong. to using CGI or, or yeah, things like or what you do even, today, or even like the kind of horror movies where you see kind of like the thing where like oh, it's model work, is it exactly, or where there's even kind of things that are sort of claymation, yeah, um, esque. Or did we say that claymation is, is, is not a thing? Um, clay, uh, clay model work? Um, um, yeah, there's some terms of art that, that I think people in the community get very kind of sensitive about what you describe work with and looking like. But to, to, to untrained eyes such as our own, yes, it resembles yeah. what we would term claymation. But in, 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 in a similar way, I, li- I, 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 do, I do like the crime. You'd be surprised the fandoms we encounter <laughs> yeah, in this well, podcast. Yeah, I just keep my mouth shut. I'm very ignorant on the topic, so... I don't want to get handed off Twitter about my views on the <laughs> claymation. <laughs> you know. The great claymation feud of 2019. Um, but yeah, but I mean, even even like the sound design is, is amazing and the use of silence then as well. So you have these weird moments of silence where like Maris is, and Cara and Carrick are going, Merrick and Karras. Merrin and Karras are going in to, to confront the demon and it's just quiet in the household. And that's uncanny because everything up to that point has been so loud and clattery and kind of chaotic. But even even scenes like the bit where um, Karras is going to visit his mother. Mm. Where you oh, have... Her mother. Yeah. But even even that scene where he's just moving through the ordinary out. world. Yeah. He's just moving... Freaks yeah. your heart. You yeah. hear like kind of second hand the, the... Oh, um... She died. Uh, yeah, yeah. But there, there's, there's a strange sort of um, sense that things are kind of out of his um, uh, control, yeah, and that nothing is uh, um, uh, making sense or following a a um, a, a pattern that's yeah. 
that you can kind of hold on to. Yeah. Well, I mean, even in that early scene um, where it's Chris McNeil's walking and the camera sort of focuses mm. on the seminary. And it's a great shot because it illustrates how close the two of them are mm. to one another, despite never having crossed paths. But the bit where the priest is talking and he's saying, you know, there's not a day in my life that I don't feel like a fraud. I mean, priests, doctors, lawyers, I've talked to them more. Oh, I don't know anyone who hasn't felt that. But that's drowned out by the sound of an airplane passing overhead because it's, it's just the world is so mm. loud and chaotic. And even sequences where he's going to visit her and he's going down the subway. Like, the f I think when I watched it a couple of months ago, um, the point at which I, the real point at which I jumped in the film was the cut of the train coming down the track in the subway. Because the noise just hits you. It's, it's like a wall of sound. But then you have that bit with the altar boy, the former altar boy with his bl piercing blue eyes. Yeah. Which doesn't, you know doesn't necessarily contribute anything in terms of plot but adds a lot in terms of tone and kind of theme and stuff it has this sense of like listlessness and hopelessness and kind of like drifted away but even when he's talking about his mother you have that whole conversation where it's like if you had been a therapist mm. she'd be living on park avenue now you know so everywhere caras goes he he hasn't doesn't even have time to think about his own problems really or deal with them because everywhere he goes someone like the old altar boy someone clamoring for help that he can't give them yeah. like there's that sequence where he goes to visit his mother in the i think the psychiatric ward oh, is yeah. meant to be bellevue or somewhere and there's all these women then he start clamoring at him for help and yeah. he just wants to get to his mother and it's even even at this moment the personal crisis there's other people who need looking yeah. for emotional support from him that he's no longer in, in a position to be able to give actually shot in a, in a real life psychiatric institution yeah. i believe um apparently some of the footage was shot using hidden cameras uh, which is, is interesting. Because Legion was... I have never seen Legion. I've had the DVD for approximately 15 years, but it's completely set in a, in a psychiatric, psychiatric ward, institution. I believe. As well. yeah. And again, that kind of fits with what you're saying about Blatty and the world kind of having this nervous kind of breakdown around it, which is kind of plays through the film kind of in, in a number of interesting ways. I have to admit, one of the things that I've always been a bit push and pull with the film about is not to get too far away from the priest, but maybe tied into this kind of like you know, the world having a nervous breakdown thing is the sense in which this is a very 70s movie. This is a very, very like anchored in the cultural anxiety of the 70s. I mean, there's the, I think some, I don't know if it's Kermode, but somebody's argued that even like the opening in the Middle East, you know, is like the oil crisis, mm. you know, where you have this evil that's happening in the Middle East that's affecting this like middle upper class American family living their suburban life. But even even things like so, you know, the, the college protests in the mm. film that's being shot at Georgetown, for example, which again is that kind of legacy of the kind of 60s coming back. You have this kind of preoccupation with, you know, kind of sexual liberation with Reagan as well, where early on she goes in a pony ride on a gelding and we're very explicit that it's a gelding. But kind of, you know, obviously you have like Pazuzu being explicitly sort of sexualized. But you have even in the version you've never seen, you have the conversation Did between... They say Pazuzu at any time. No, they don't. This, that's fair. They don't say Pazuzu, which may be a good choice. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But we'll... If anybody is just seeing the exes, Who the hell is Pazuzu? Um, he was mentioned in the novel and in some of the other exorcist-related ah, material. Okay. But the demon then, the it's, demon. It's actually kind of important because quite understandably... It's a bit like poltergeist. People tend to think poltergeist that the house is built in an Indian burial ground and it isn't. Yeah. It might as well be, but it's actually liter in a literal sense, not in a, oh. in a very realistic sense. Not. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Planning is very difficult on Indian burial grounds. <laughs> exactly. One would hope. <laughs> I've not seen Pat Cemetery. But, um, what the, geez, what was my point there? Rewind, oh, the, rewind, the, way, the way in which maybe the sequels have kind of shaped or informed it, Pazuzu and the way that we yeah. call him Pazuzu, even though he's not well, called Well, everyone Pazuzu. presumes naturally enough that she's possessed by Satan and she isn't. It's actually one of his many, many demons there's, yeah. there's to the sense that it's actually nearly worse than you thought. Like the devil's yeah. behind it, you know, but it's, it's actually this is not low even level. the devil. Yeah. yeah, this is sort of mid-level. This is a guy kind of proving his chance. Well, this is interesting because I think Pazuzu 
um, is actually he is he is a real demon who existed in Mesopotamia. Um, Mesopot- a real demon. A real demon in in real life, but as in like he's a, he's a figure from Mesopotamian folklore, I believe. And he would us for our discussion of the heretic too. <laughs> <laughs> but he was actually apparently a really nice. Uh, he was actually not a bad demon. You would pray to him to protect your crops and stuff like that, um, as opposed to being like this harbinger of terrible, terrible doom. In fact, people would actually worship him. To protect them from worse demons, which Just is kind of Just another demon getting on with his life, being unfairly maligned by the liberal media. Yeah, it's I know. like, your mother. Profiling. <laughs> <laughs> your mother eats soap. Warm soap. In heaven. Um, okay, bye now. Um, Pazuzu, the sex positive demon. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. But, but it is. But it, <laughs> yeah. But there is, there is this element of it where it feels like it's kind of tapping into that kind of 70s kind of. Again, this is the, the breakdown of the modern world, but from a very, very you, Catholic point of view. Is, are you, is, you're, so things like the suggestion, the, the suggestion of Pazuzu, the sex positive, is that her son is like, well, that's good. Because she was so lonely <laughs> in that house on her own. It's good now that she's in hell. But, yeah, yeah, she's enjoying a rigorous, rigorous. Right. Uh, Are you talking yeah. about the daughter or the mother? Because it's a very disturbing it's conversation a, either way. Very no, no, no. Yeah. About the, the demon describing uh, it's his mother's mother. situation. Oh, sorry. Yeah, that, uh, yeah, that makes more. Uh, uh, makes a lot more sense. I apologize. Um, but, but seriously, misreading from the mouth of babes. Yeah, um, a bit worried. But there is there is this kind of sense. It is a very it is a very Catholic movie to a certain extent. But it's also like there's a sense in which it's reckoning with like the anxieties of the late sixties. So things like the student protests I mentioned earlier. But even things like Reagan's sort of approaching sexual awakening, for example. So things like again riding the gelding at the start, and then obviously the mm. stuff that happens later on. But even things like in the cut you've never seen, there's a conversation about her use of language. And like I think it's it's Stephen King and Dance Macabre argued that like. One of the ways that he's read The Exorcist, now Blatty's denied this, but one of the ways that King has always read The Exorcist is this story of parents in the late 60s struggling to come to terms with kids that they don't understand. Mm. And I mean, there's this wonderful bit where she takes Reagan to the therapist and the therapist, not to the, sorry, to the actual like neuroscientists. And they're like, oh, she's just going through some changes. Her personality may change slightly. She may seem hyperactive and aggressive. It's like, yep, that's puberty. That's pretty much you've described puberty. That's what happens to your little girl these days. <laughs> she swears like a sailor. She masturbates with crucifixes. You know, it's just, they're all yeah. over the place, kids, these days. Yeah. That's, <laughs> and also, there's she comes from, to use that horrible pejorative term, a broken home. Yes. And that's a really important strand of it, actually. Yeah. That, uh, the absent that, father. The absent father. I'm not the first one to point this out. There's been a lot of yeah. very analysis of the film. The, the Captain Howdy, her father's called Howard. Ah, I didn't know uh, that. I didn't yeah, pick that one um, the, the first major change in behavior happens after the father misses her call on her birthday. Yeah. And, and the mother's Burke, really angrily ringing him up. And they have the conversation about Burke staying over and stuff like that. And the first yeah, victim... And she's resentful of Burke yeah. even before it starts. Yeah, and the first the first victim of, of her is Burke. And you don't even see him. You just find out that, oh yeah, he was in the house and now he's not. Um, his neck is broken down the bottom. Anybody says, like that guy? You don't want to Having a dinner party, I wouldn't have Burke Dennings there. No, no. no. Uh, you just vomit on your rug. I oh, know actually the rug still gets defiled, but not yeah. by Burke Dennings. Yeah. Um, I feel like more calling the house staff Nazis is probably when they're from Switzerland. Yeah. yeah. They were neutral, <laughs> goddammit. Yeah. We just took the gold. Um, I don't know why I did the accent. Um, <laughs> There's actually a whole storyline in the novel that's quite interesting. The novels, because obviously Blatty did the screenplay, it's a bit like uh, Rosemary's Baby. It's a very, very faithful to the novel, but. There's one strand that they have erased, which is to do with uh, Carl, the 
the male housekeeper. Oh and yeah. He's a, they've got a daughter that they're estranged from, and there's a load of scenes in the fil- in the novel where Kinderman's really suspicious of his behavior, and it turns out he's got a daughter who's left them and is addicted to drugs, and he's been going to her house like her squat basically and giving her money. And he hasn't told the wife. The wife actually yeah. thinks that she's dead. So there's actually this parallel strand about lost daughters that intersects really nicely them. with um, yeah. what's happening to Reagan. Yeah, and it kind of it, it does kind of it feels like it encapsulates all those. I mean, even the Washington setting. I think that one of the early conflicts in the production of the film was that they wanted to again the production of The Exorcist is full of all these wonderful stories in large part because Blatty and Friedkin are fantastic storytellers. Apparently, they would have staged arguments for executives. So when executives would come down to the set. Blatty and Friedkin would actually shout at one another just to make the executives think that the production was coming apart. Uh, but there's things like they suggested um, shooting it on building sets and shooting on sets because it might be cheaper, to which Friedkin wrote a memo suggesting that he could just paint the buildings black and shoot day for night. Um, and that might also be cost effective for them as well. Um, but like one of the suggestions was moving the film from Washington uh, to the West Coast to, to make it easier to shoot. Uh, and to, so that also so the studio could have greater control over it as well. And apparently for Blouty and Friedkin, setting it in Washington was a very important thematic element of the movie. Because it's, you know, what evil was happening in Washington around 1973, we wonder. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Um, Thank, God. <laughs> yeah. Thank God they're okay now. I mean, yeah, I can't, imagine. I can't, imagine if there was some sort of crisis in the White House of a non-qualified president. We can say that and it won't date the, the podcast. <laughs> <at all. laughs> Those clowns in Washington are at it again. <laughs> How does he keep up with the news like that? Um, um, but yeah, <laughs> there is that kind of sense of like using Washington that way. But even things like the dinner party as well, where you have the, the liberal priest on the piano who's like, oh, great yeah. party. And it's like, I have it when I go to heaven, it's just a nightclub and I'm playing every night and people love it. And yeah. it's, there's a real sense of like the movie being like stupid liberal, like street priests, because it was street priests around that time. Sounds it? like a really bad action film. Like <laughs> street, street priests. <laughs> Yeah. The power of Christ compels you to see this movie. You'd um, save your soul whether you wanted to or not. Yeah, but um, but like it, this was around the time that you had those kind of like liberalization within the Catholic Church. What? No, I was just imagining some kind of like um, step up movie. But with no. priests. I think it would be Chuck Norris. Chuck Norris is street, <laughs> street, street priest. Street priest, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I want financial backing for this, yeah. this treatment. I'm going to start working. He'll on. send you to heaven, but he'll put you through hell. Um, but yeah, uh, tell me you don't. That would legitimately be better than at least like three of the Exorcist sequels. By the way, big time, is, big time. Is it time for our segment where we pitch um, um, <laughs> your own other, horror movie, other, other, other movies? Go we on. would only do that for for a bad movie, though, would we? Yeah, from... we, we've we've pitched uh, Street Priest. I'd like to pitch uh, Knock, Knock, Knock. You've, you've heard of Knock, Knock. Yes, Keanu Reeves, yeah. Eli Roth directing, uh, Anna Darmos. I haven't seen it. <laughs> this... Take that, Keanu Reeves. Ha- no, no, no. I haven't seen it either. I've seen the trailer. I like the, I like the way you have to defend is, yourself, Andrew. It's which, like, no, no. Like, I, I feel like I've gotten what the movie is about <laughs> from seeing the trailer. So allow My me to pitch. My is Knock, Knock, Knock. It's set in Knock. It has like a, um, maybe it's a couple who buy like this holiday home and go over there and then kind of. Probably because it has an airport built. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it writes itself. Yeah. 
Precisely. And, and, but then they have these kind of people knocking on their doors, like kind of, you know, selling them rosary beads. And there's these kind of. I feel like you may not have got what knock knock is about from the trailer. Slowly walking around <laughs> kind of the, the, the streets. I think eventually at the end, there's going to be like the whole village kind of like walking slowly towards their houses, holding crosses and things. And that, yeah, yeah, that it's just going to be this, this, this kind of something. Something strange is happening in this village. Um, now you go. <laughs> I, I, I'm okay. I'm out. I'm out. But um, back, back to talk about The Exorcist. Um, actually, one of the things that always strikes me when I watch it, and uh, I've gone long periods of time without watching it, which is you know interesting because there are so many movies, but it always surprised me how the film's prologue, I occasionally forget that the film's prologue actually exists. Mm. I tend to think of the film as opening in Georgetown and kind of being very tightly focused around Georgetown. Use of a lot of relocations as well, the famous steps, which are now known as the Exorcist Steps yeah. as a result of that. And we'll talk about those next week, but they use Georgian, uh, sorry, you know, sort of townhouses uh, from Georgetown as well for the shooting of the scenes. I think they were shot in a real household. Mm. Um, and, and that sort of stuff there as well. But the movie's opening sequence in Northern Iraq is interesting because it's i think it works thematically but it's very different from the rest of the film it's a it has a very different mood to it a very different tempo to it Marin's actually not yeah. in it that much that's it yeah. I, I always forget this but there, it's a good hour and 40 minutes or so before Marin comes back and then yeah. now we're in the smaller zone Marin comes and back and dead, dies dead yeah. 10 minutes later dies again, off screen yeah. <laughs> although don't worry the sequel may help you out with that one um but yeah yeah it but like Marin has that same uh, sense that 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 Karis has that there's something wrong with the world. Yeah, and it, every, everything is kind of um, uh, disturbing. Um, yeah, and uncanny, to, and uncomfortable. Yeah, yeah. Not even and, like the stopping of the clock, for example. Yeah. Well, it establishes this wider theme of the battle between good and evil on a global scale. Yeah. It's not just this one house in Georgetown. As yeah. I said, the little girl's kind of a red herring in respect yeah. to uh, Regan. It's 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 all about this wider conflict that's going yeah. on. A but final conflict, as the Omen would put it. <laughs> yeah, um, and it's it's the the same demon. Yeah. Um, that we, we, we find in the in the ruins in Nineveh and on the the uh, bottom of the stairs in in and in flashing in quickly in the house as well uh, yeah. during the the exorcism itself. Um, it appears, but I mean, even things like the um, but even that shot of him standing on kind of the the cliff edge, and then you have it like just sort of dissolving with the sun and with the demon on the other incredible. side. It, it's incredible. And it does, it lends the film this sort of almost kind of mythic kind of structure to it, where there's a sense of it is much bigger than what's going on with Karis, which makes it kind of strange that like everybody thinks of, when I think of the exorcist, I think of Meron reflexively. As you point out, he's just there at the start and the end and yeah. he dies off screen. Um, and he's, you know, mostly kind of. You'd be surprised of... if he's in it for more than 25 minutes or so. Yeah. He's probably yeah. in the, in the sequel for roughly the same amount of time. Oh um, yeah, easily. Yeah, and yeah. He, he has this like, and he's the most iconic shot—the the poster shot, the trailer shot, the shot of the light trailing through the window as he gets out of the taxi—is like again. And people think of Tubler Bell playing in that moment when really Tubler Bell is only used earlier on when um, Chris is walking through. And quite uh, late as well. Again, I, I think like many people, I always presume it's always called the Exorcist theme, but it's actually about half an hour into it. Yeah, Tubler Bell stays. Yeah, and I, I was uh, surprised with that as well. Yeah. yeah, that it wasn't kind of... Constant. It, yeah, that it, that it wasn't that your man gets out of the... Or stands in front and that the two <laughs> bells just plays yeah. for... And then maybe they cut back 
Come back out standing like and tube the bells are still playing. Like an poster. Doesn't that last about forty five minutes though? The full tubular bells is really, really long. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and apparently, um, Mike, uh, Michael, is Mike Oldfield? Mike Oldfield, that's right. Um, yeah. But he was saying that he was apparently really disappointed with how the music was used in the film. And I wonder about that because it's, it's like, despite the fact that it, it's iconic, and I think it's perhaps iconic because I think it was used in the trailer as much as it was used in the film yeah. itself. Because in the film itself, it's only really used in that shot of her walking through Georgetown, right? Yeah. 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 It's probably yeah. more iconic yeah. three because of the trailer. Yeah, because yeah. that's what I think about when I see that image of Marin kind of with the light shine down him. But like the music that isn't really the heart of the film again like i don't really think of kind of like except when i'm watching it about Karis as as a character who's central to the exorcist because he's he's not it's it's interesting because apparently he was I going to yeah no. well no I, I came away from it thinking more about um Karis. yeah than about Marin. yeah whereas uh, before watching the movie it's like Max von Sydow. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> Max von Sydow. Um, but yeah, because that's the thing is that Karis was um, famously, it was originally cast as Stacey Keach, actually. Hmm. He was going to be Stacey Keach. A um, different energy. A very different yeah. energy. Well, I mean, they, again, they had the whole host of cast. I think John Voight was in the in the running at one point for the role. I kind of, like, part of me imagines what would have happened if you got Al Pacino oh. to, play, <laughs> to play that similar role. Um, not 90s Al Pacino, to be clear. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. Even seventies one, I'm, I mean, I think Jason Miller is just incredible, and yeah. he's just no, because he was he's so brooding. He's such a brooding, sad priest. Yeah, you feel really sorry for him. And and kind of the fact that he doesn't have a lot of the energy that you associate with people, like you mentioned Jack Nicholson earlier, for example, he doesn't have that kind of like seventies leading man energy, which makes the movie more interesting. I think the other thing that that helps, sorry, in that respect, yeah. is that. He was much better known as a playwright. Alan Burstyn had a pretty good... I think she'd worked with Martin Scorsese, for instance, before, but yeah. she wasn't particularly well-known. Uh, uh, they wanted Audrey Blair Hepburn. Was an unknown. What a different film it would have been. Yeah, she she suggests that they move the film to Rome, mm. um, <laughs> which is great. I love that. I'll, I'll accept the masturbation via crucifix, um, all the uncomfortable stuff there, you know, the possible commentary on me as a kind of an actor and celebrity, but you just got to move the production to Rome. That's all I ask. Is it so much? Um... <laughs> But yeah, it, it, it's and it, it's interesting because it is, yeah. It is this cast that's, you know, it not huge. movie stars in it, it would have been a very... Different a film. A very different vibe. And I think too, when you've got a, an, act, an actor playing a, movie, playing a movie star, it also is quite distracting if they actually are one in real life in a, in a strange kind of way. I think it works. You, you sort of buy Chris McNeil as a... As a working actress, because you, you don't really know Ellen Burstyn. Yeah, so you don't have the baggage of like assuming yeah. that is this is this a clever commentary on Ellen Burstyn as an actor or something that I'm not getting. Yeah, is yeah. this like Julia Roberts and Notting Hill kind of you know yeah. taking the mick out of herself or whatever? But I mean, Shirley MacLaine famously lobbied for part in this, and the character was in the novel was I mean, it also physically they look very alike in that at that time in the seventies. Yeah. They both had the same sort of short red hair. And um, McLean didn't get the role ultimately, and it went to Burston, and apparently she was really, really unhappy about this because mm. uh, Blackie had actually slightly based the character, of course, oh. on McLean. They were next door neighbours. Ah. So, yeah, a lot of people thought at the time <laughs> that it was something that had happened to Shirley McLean and her daughter. <laughs> and obviously, McLean wasn't very happy about that either, particularly when she didn't get the role. Well, it is, it is worth yeah. noting that um, this is. Based on a true story in inverted commas, actually, we should probably talk a little bit about this mm. because it was um, it was inspired by stories that 
that he had heard when he was at Georgetown. Um, particularly the Washington Post had actually covered this as a front page story. The story of an exorcism um, that had taken place, I think 1949 is when it was. And a lot of the details, and again, this is something that I think the film does really well, because the film has this very low-key naturalistic kind of quality to it the use of like real locations the sound design which emphasizes like the noise of the world around the characters uh the fact in which sort of like it's con- the camera's constantly moving and it's constantly showcasing like familiar locations like you know just general generic locations like train stations and doctor's offices and like it's very unshowy <laughs> and yeah. kind of understated as yeah. well and often kind of obscured with sound as yeah. well um the way people talk they're like like it's often even kind of the way they kind of shake their heads or are just kind of they, they they especially with Karis where he's like ah oh, I should have been there <laughs> yeah like where 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 there isn't kind of this um uh, very kind of writerly sort of um, yeah there's uh, no big the, monologue the about yeah, you know, he doesn't yeah. stop and stare out a window and talk about a childhood memory that is thematically relevant to what's happening yeah. at the moment that's sort of and stuff. They, even like, and I think they, Miller works that way because he's he's not he doesn't. He doesn't look like an actor to a certain extent. He's stockier. He was a he went to a seminary, I believe, as well. Oh. So he actually, I think he his pitch. He knows the moves then. That, that's yeah. exactly. Well, his well, pitch he was... has he has to keep being reminded. It's like Damien, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, so he must have forgotten some of them. And I I like I like the the, the kind of realism of that because yeah. it's kind of it's breaking um, the scene a little bit, but it's also kind of adding suspense because you know he's getting stuck. Yeah. That said, I one of the moments that kind of slightly took me out of the film was the moment during the final exorcism with Meryn where the demon throws up on on him. Mm. Where you have the quick cut of, of Karis hiding behind the uh, little poster at the end of the bed, which is like something from Repossessed to a certain extent. Because like, oh, I'm not falling for that one again. Yeah, well, we'd all do the same, I think. Um, yeah. But apparently, um, you know that how they got the shocked reaction was that they told him that the vomit would be landing on his chest. Oof. And then just pounded his face with a uh, lot more of it. Max. Yeah. <laughs> no, not Max. Um, this is Karis, Jason Miller. Oh, yeah. Whereas Ma- Ma- Max's reaction to it is like, this Another is day not at the my office. first exorcism. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Going to have to be a bit more impressive to sort of like to get He's around. He's seen some stuff in foreign countries. You know? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Dogs fighting. He's been places, yeah. yeah. Dogs fighting, strange coffee, busy marketplaces, almost getting run down by a carriage with a laughing woman in it. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah. Stop pendulums. Red uh, flag. Yeah. Um, but uh, it, it is this kind of thing that kind of runs through the film where it has this sort of... Wait, what were we talking about? Oh, the naturalism. Because uh, it, it's based on a... It is based on this account of an exorcism yeah. that happened. And a lot of stuff that actually happens in The Exorcist is based on the accounts of this story. Yeah. Uh, including, for example, the bit where Help Me is written on her stomach appears as scarred letters. That was apparently when that occurred in the story of the boy... Um, it was basically written, it was Lewis was written on it, which was the family took to mean the city of St. Louis and moved him to the city of St. Louis, for example. But even things like the projectile vomiting and stuff like that. But the Ouija board, which is kind of like something you flagged that we want to come back to, which is the moral panic that the exorcist kind of inspired. Because the Ouija board as a toy had been around since I think the late 18th century. The Catholic Church had actually issued an edict against it in 1919. Uh, Pope Pius, I don't know which number he was. Was he nine? Possibly Pius. There were nine. many Piuses, weren't there? Yeah. That's a very good Pope name. Yeah. Uh, you got the alliteration and you got like the obvious kind of pope. I want to say 11. Okay. Which is your favourite Pius? They definitely Pius, got to double digits. <laughs> yeah. Oh, they did. Yeah. There's a, there was an X Pius, in there somewhere. Pius 2 misses the whole point of, of, of Pius, Pius 1. one. Yeah. Yeah. Pius 3 is a bit of a return to form, but I think people have kind of given up on the series by then, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah. I won't name names, but I once had a terrible teacher whose first name coincided with that Pope. Uh, so every time I hear that name, I'm like, oh, 
<laughs> that reflexive quality. I won't name names, but his first name is Pablo. But if he's listening to this podcast, <laughs> yes, I did pass my GCSEs. Um, um, well, some of them. I love but, yeah. if we were sued for defamation because we were like, people listen to this? <laughs> but like, we've got a large enough listener base that people called Pious listen to this podcast, which is great. Um, but the thing is that it was it was inspired by this sort of like true story of kind of the exorcism, but you did have this panic around Ouija boards. What's interesting about the Ouija board panic is that apparently one of the concerns was not necessarily like the spiritual occult one. Um, it was It was that... The Ouija board was a game which encouraged young men and women to sit opposite each other across a table in a darkened room by candlelight. And yeah, yeah. And thus led to kind of the moral corruption and degradation of kind of society as a whole. Mm. Yeah. You got splinters and stuff. Yeah, that's exactly what I think they were getting <laughs> yeah. at there. But it is because it did lead to a lot of that kind of panic around it. Because the Ouija board beforehand was just a toy. It was the one of the biggest selling board games in 1967. Made I think. by Hasbro, wasn't it? Yeah, it, it outsold yeah. Monopoly in the late oh. 60s. Yeah, it was just it was a fun thing to do of an evening. If anyone's listening and wants to get me a good Christmas present, I've actually always wanted a Ouija board. So oh. I'm just putting that out there, family members. <laughs> just any yeah. of you. Uh, join us next year when <laughs> Bernice slash Pazuzu will be and joining us. And here's my Amazon Christmas. wish list. Is, um, we, yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, for, it's just in time for Christmas. For Halloween know? 2020, we, yeah, bring your Ouija board. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah, we need more segments. Yeah. <laughs> I do have a Ouija board mouse map, but, you know, I don't have the proper kind of tool for it. But I'd be too scared to use it, even though I'm an atheist, because I was raised as a Catholic, and you were told not to mess around with that stuff. That's it, exactly. So, I am a coward. I was, like, as as a teenager, I was shocked to discover that Ouija boards were, like, mass-produced Hasbro toys, and not, like, these things that, like, priests kept locked up in the back of their sort of vaults, you know, sort of, like, confiscated. You don't think of them getting, like, made in a factory alongside Hungry Hungry Hippos or whatever, or Mousetrap, you know? (laughs) Well, Hungry Hungry Hippos. Buckaroo, which I think is the work of Satan. (laughs) (laughs) Operation. But but not hungry, hungry hippos. Well, Operation would fit in really well with The Exorcist because I think, segue, see what I did there, Michael. I think one of the things that really works in the film is all these really in-depth medical procedures, which apparently at the time were the scenes that people really reacted badly to, particularly the, was it the arteriogram Arteriogram. with the blood? It was apparently done for real, according to to Friedkin. Um, Friedkin, uh, like in interviews around the same time, boasted that they actually did that to Linda Blair, which is yeah, I know. What? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, Don't think you'd be allowed to do that in a child. You're making a movie. (laughs) Well, no, this is uh, Friedkin has this sort of long. Yeah, this is again. This is where you talk about seventies auteurs and the kind of things that don't fly today in Hollywood, (laughs) where it's like, so you got like a fourteen-year-old actor. Do you mind if we just like puncture her artery and let the blood spray everywhere for a solid minute of footage? At least. Uh, it was for a good film you know yeah. <laughs> as opposed like, to we well going, we're probably going to talk about doing stuff to Linda Blair for a bad film next week I suspect poor, poor Linda Blair she's probably like when is the scene where I get to ride the horse there's something yeah. in the script about that she never gets that no. horse <laughs> never does but apparently it was a beautiful horse as well it yeah. was really and something. and completely gelded. They go out of their way to state <laughs> repeatedly, just in case. Uh, but even things like yeah, Graham Garden, who trained as a physician and, and criticized the film *A New Scientist*, described that as like the films. Like he wasn't concerned about stuff like the Ouija board or stuff like the occult element. His his big concern about the film was the the arteriogram scene because he deemed that as being incredibly risky and incredibly dangerous and an abuse of an actor. Mm. And he found again, and it's kind of interesting that we have these discussions now about things like *Last Tango in Paris* with Marlon Brando. Um, but even even back then it's kind of interesting that people were saying yeah this is not a cool thing to be doing to yeah. a child actor um part of me is imagining freaking going all right six take is the charm 
Um, but it, it is. Our kids are resilient. Their blood cells grow back really quickly. Yeah. You know? um, but yeah, that, that's the those tests are arguably the most the scariest scenes of the film too, for me. They're they're absolutely crucial to the power that the film accumulates because. Um, if you forgive me, I've been reading a lot about a radical Shirley Jackson recently and uh, in her letter she talks about her classic book, classic haunted house novel, The Haunting of Hill House, which yeah. is made into The Haunting and then 1999 version of The Haunting, which we won't go into. But Another blockbuster in your, horror in film. Bottom. But she talks about how it was really important with that novel that she started off really, really, really slow because things were going to really pick up towards the end. And I think that's that's a lot of what's happening there with the medical yeah. test and the exorcist. I think it's part of the reason why the film seems so naturalistic and persuasive in a way because they go to really great lengths to to rule out medical reasons why this child is so so terribly yeah. unwell and even without the the devil uh you know sorry Pazuzu uh the demon <laughs> the demon's involvement it would still be a really upsetting film about you know you've got a beloved child that gets this terrible illness and is behaving acting out in all kinds of violent and dangerous ways and you don't know what's wrong with her like it's it's actually an upsetting film and a relatable film on that level for anything supernatural yeah. happens so i think that those bits are are, are really like Karas isn't just a priest he's all introduced first of all as a psychiatrist he yeah. is actually a man of science yeah and his advice is like forget about an exorcism yeah uh, go and take her to a yeah. neurologist he's but... the one saying exorcism come on what are you talking yeah. about you know it's it's it goes out of its way to make it like the last resort yeah which his i think is really important weary kind of skepticism yeah really adds to the to the believability yeah. Of um of when 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 the exorcism comes about, like the we, we um we haven't been told to believe it. Mm. We um yeah we've, been, we've told, been told not to believe it. Yeah, which is which is great, and I, which, I, is, which is yeah it works really really better. effective. It also makes it even more on a on a propaganda level even more effective as a propaganda yes. tool. Yeah, like bloody yeah. For the church because it's like we know that this stuff is really unlikely. We, we are men of science here, mm. but this, there's clearly something very wrong here. You know, it's, yeah. it's not just leaping believe, straight yeah. into it. Yeah. It, it, it's very similar to when we watched, and again, this is probably the only time that anybody's going to mention Crimea, the Russian propaganda film about the invasion of, oh, sorry, liberation of Ukraine <laughs> uh, and the exodus in the same sentence. But like, again, you have that sense of like, when you really want to sell the moral importance of what you're doing. So in Crimea, it's like the Russians are like, what right do we have to intervene? Nah. Um, which is like this really angsty, there's yeah. moments of like people staring out over the sea thinking, do we have the right? Um, you know, and there's a real sense here of that, which is like, well, you really have to exhaust everything to get to the point yeah. of there being an exorcism. Yeah, the whole thing in Crimea is like, we, we don't, we don't want to, we don't want to have to get involved yeah. in invading Ukraine there. This is, this isn't, this isn't our fight to, but there's some bad things happening that we, we can't just stand here and do nothing. Yeah, which yeah. is very similar to like the, the Catholicism of the exorcist, which is like, yeah, where uh, Karas is like, yeah, you should talk to a psychiatrist, take her to a neurologist. But even those scenes themselves are really terrifying. And again, it's the naturalism of it. It's the use of sound in those sequences, the way in which the camera, because the film doesn't use a lot of music, which is probably why Tubular Bell has become so mm. iconic. But it, it kind of stays away from music. So you have these shots of Reagan just having her head probed and sort of like the scanner going over, the blood being drawn. And it's just presented, matter of fact, almost like a documentary. And it's really, really uncomfortable. It's really, really unsettling in a way that, you know, covering her face with makeup and like having her speak like a 50-year-old woman who has smoked, you know, 20 packs a day, um, you know, doesn't, isn't for me as scary as you're tied down in a chair and you got to stare up as these gigantic machines hum around you. 
never heard this before and I will start this anecdote with the caveat that it's on the Wikipedia page for The Exorcist. <laughs> uh, but you know when you go in a bit of a wormhole? Yeah. That apparently the guy who's the, the, the laboratory technician who talks her through the procedure um, murdered someone a couple of years later and then was really strongly suspected of being a serial killer in and around kind of, uh, of, of gay men in and around the village in New York and that this directly inspired Friedkin to do cruising. Ah, that was the first note. I said, "Say with the caveat." That <laughs> it's Wikipedia, all connected. Welcome, welcome uh, to the William Friedkin. My students will be going, "Why is she signing Wikipedia?" We would be working for that. Um, <laughs> I am a hypocrite, uh, but yeah. It's so I'll be watching that scene again, going, "Oh my god, that guy is a probable serial killer." Yeah. So. So let's throw that out there. He plays a completely, you know, dead inside person very, very well, very convincingly. Apparently, he was prayed, praised for the for the kind of the kindly way in which he spoke to children and calmed them down. And they they saw him do a procedure and they liked him so much they were like, what, "Clearly, <laughs> were you doing it in real life? Bring him back in." Yeah. So there you go. <laughs> but uh, yeah, that's quite the quite the sort of uh, quite the wiggy worm. As I say, can't can't stand by it. But you know. That's, <laughs> So good performance right there a lot of chatter on wikipedia about this yeah um but in terms of so like the thing with the the actual exorcism itself because we haven't talked too much about it um those are the scenes for me that don't did they take a break <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's like take the type five um yeah <laughs> and, and Marin going back in by himself and dying yeah. off screen i love the fact that Marin, like uh, Karas is like let me tell you the background to the case and he just goes nah let's go, just get into it we don't need that yeah he like you know? Karras is like do you want to know the background he's like why <laughs> which is great it's like Demon. no, no. I'm yeah. familiar with this thing yeah we, we've done this before song and dance like yeah. I'll be out in about five um, you guys can you order some takeaway I'm usually nothing famishes me like an exorcism just deliver um. it below the window and I'll get it <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah because the, the exorcist scenes are interesting because they, they are only the last half hour of the film uh, which is amazing because you assume the exorcism is going to be mm. so much of the film. Um, and it, they're odd because they are the scenes that have dated. And even things like the like the, the crucifix masturbation and stuff like that that happens earlier in the scenes. That's still a hell of a scene. It's I, I, I'm pretty desensitized, but I still go, oh my God. Okay. But that I, scene, I find that not pretty fun. No. You're the so desensitized. <laughs> Who doesn't use crucifix? No, okay, but anyway, um, but no, it, it it's because they're like so much of the film is naturalistic up to that point that you reach the point where things are being like furniture is being thrown around rooms and stuff, and it feels like it belongs more in kind of like a hammer horror sort of thing than what you've been seeing to this it's point. Barely, the level of obscenity barely. in it is, I think, even for sorry, Andrew, sorry. Um, even oh, for no, no. even for a film made these days. If you had a scene where a child is shown to be masturbating with a crucifix while shoving her mother into her crotch, that's pretty full on in 2019. Yeah. And this is what, 74? 73. 73, 73. sorry. It's, yeah. it's, I'm kind of amazed they got away with it. It's, in the language. Yeah. 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 Which we can't say or I'd have to be... Well, we, yeah, we have to go up with some sort of creative... I'm trying to figure out what noise I take from the exorcist that isn't the obscenity itself in order to properly bleep it. Why don't you bleep it over with the obscenity itself? <laughs> yeah. Can you do that? <laughs> Thanks, Andrew. I do appreciate that. I'm pretty sure that would fall foul of sort of Apple or iTunes rules. Uh, but yeah, the, like, and it, it's things like the bit where she's... Like the the version you've ever seen before includes the spider walk sequence, mm. which was deemed too. It didn't work when they shot it in seventy three. They used some CGI to do it afterwards. It's it's the moment before. Have I seen this version? Okay, it, does she come down the stairs uh, like a spider, like hands, his legs, and 
bent over backwards, blood you pouring out of her mouth. You You'd it. probably remember it. Yeah, I feel like it would. No, I feel like it would no, not have slipped from consciousness. No, um, not, and, not in the version I saw. I think I only ever saw it in the documentary. Wasn't it? Kermode got it restored. Yeah. For the sorry, I, yeah. Yeah. I, I believe it was, but it was folded into the, the expanded version. And again, like this is the thing where then they wanted to release the film in cinemas again. They asked Friedkin to go back and do a director's cut. And his response was the director's cut is the version of the film that was made. I'm happy enough with it. But we'll call it something else. We'll call it the version you've never seen before. Mm. Which is odd because you can only watch it once then, right? Um, but it includes, it actually explains the break, uh, which Andrew was wondering about. Like, why do you take a break in the middle of the exorcism? The reason why you take the break is because... Oh, it, he needed to take his pill. Yes, but also it has a scene where Karis uh, and Meryn explain thematically what's happening, which is very similar to what Bernice was mentioning, where it's like, why is this happening to this girl? And Meryn pretty much lays out, well, actually, it's not about the girl at all. Yeah. Um, it's just about you and I and about faith and about like proving that something good in the world can be debased. And if you can do that, then you don't just like damn the soul of the girl. You damn us as well, because we accept that this sort of behavior is normal or that this sort of, you know, this is just the way the world is and there's nothing we can do about it. And so there's this big discussion, which I kind of like about it. I, I think it's a nice addition to the film, but I understand that it had to be cut, I think, to get under two hours mm. was the kind of edict that was given. Um, yeah. But I mean, the, the exorcism scenes themselves, I think you mentioned earlier that they haven't necessarily dated well. Yeah, I think, and, I, and, and that's not to slag the film no. off for having, you know, it's, it's a film made in 74. I think they're, they were outstanding and groundbreaking for their time. Dick Smith, wasn't it the special effects guy? The mannequin, the doll. With the, the rotating head. head. The rotating well, head stuff. It's done I think, quick enough, I think, that it doesn't make that big a It is, problem. and you can see why within, the, within its context, yeah. it worked really well. I think part of the issue too is that um, there have been so many films that have really and, and often quite a boring way replicated the same yeah. effects over and over again that they're so they're a bit like we were talking about ring earlier um before the show and uh, <laughs> the japanese horror film yeah. and there came a point about five years into the millennium where you're going if i see one more film with a creepy dead girl with long, with hair, long black hair over her face yeah. and i think that's what happened this was such a game changer that you had so many films even these days there are so yeah. many films where they're about young women who get possessed and they all have the same symptoms. It's just yeah. particularly the floating over the bed type stuff yeah. and the contorted body movements. And it all sort of starts there. So it's the curse of familiarity, which of course isn't that film's fault because yeah. it was the first to do this. Yeah. Well, that's it. Well, I mean like this is very much the, like, you know, the conjuring franchise, which is this oh, big yeah. blockbuster kind of horror Exorcist movie. Exorcist light. That's, that's it. Exactly. Yeah. It, like all these movies are kind of anchored in the Exorcist. And I should like, say, I, I quite like the first one. I think it, Yes. It's actually got really spooky end credits, which are I think are spookier than the film itself. Um, I, I have a soft spot for the first one as well. I think the second one is interesting because it's the only horror film I've seen with a car chase um, involving like in a sort of like a Fast and Furious style found a car chase. It's the one where they get to they the, have Nas. <laughs> they get to um, they get to the uh, the train station and they're like, wait, we found something about the case. And then you had that this really, because you can tell that James Wan's like, I'm directing a Fast and Furious film. So let's just slot this into The Conjuring 2. We have the car weaving through traffic as they're racing to get back to the house to, to do the exorcism to save the girl on time. But they were, I mean, the Warrens, don't get yes. me started oh, on yeah. Ed and Lorraine Warren, just absolute chancers. Yeah. But, um, RIP, but, um, sorry, Lorraine <laughs> recently died, but they, they themselves came about to prominence in a culture that was very much post-exorcist culture. And then yeah. just... Like they got a lot of their language and stuff clearly from the likes of the exorcist. Yeah, and I mean even things like I know backward masking would have been very popular in the late sixties as a result of things like the Beatles using it to play their instrument tracks. The Paul is dead theory I think came from nineteen sixty nine from backward masks for playing back 
one of their tracks as revolutions or something like that. But even here, like you can see things like that where you have Karis, like he's talking about like what language is that? It's English, but it's backwards. Mm. Like, and then how much of the satanic panic is like rooted in that idea of like playing stuff backwards and getting demonic messages well, in and it. The most famous single text that sparked off satanic panic um, was a Canadian uh, originating book. Canadians, actually. People never think of this. Never like, suspect oh, the Canadians. <laughs> starting with the Canadians, a book called Michelle Remembers, which was uh, allegedly a psychiatric case study about a young woman who suffered weird weird sort of somatic symptoms. And it eventually turned out from from her dedicated um, therapist who then became her husband, it was a very dodgy story, um, that she had been abused by the satanic cult in Victoria, British Columbia, and this book that became, den of inequity but this book uh, it's it's really remarkable it's it's just absolute hokum but they're directly lifting stuff from the exorcist from rosemary's baby and this became it was the single most influential kind of uh, it was a bestseller and presented as non-fiction and a bit like the amityville horror even to an even greater extent it kicked off all yeah. of this satanic panic stuff yeah. And they got the language, they got a lot of the scenes and stuff from The Exorcist. Lifted directly. Well, I mean, even The Exorcist ends with the idea that, you know, Reagan has repressed this, which kind of probably plays into the, the importance of recovered memories. That, actually. They should make a wow. sequel and develop that. That'd be a really great idea, a really way, an interesting way to develop it. But yeah, even that sort of aspect of it, where it's, it's kind of... It's based on some of the things that Satan was doing at the time. (laughs) (laughs) He's kind of grown past that at that stage. He's no longer into backward masking. He's all over Twitter at the moment. Yeah, yeah. Uh, (laughs) Embracing social media is kind of the thing about it. Um, But in terms of the Exorcist, actually, is there anything more that we want to kind of discuss about anything that we haven't discussed already? I think, uh, can we just say, I've said it again, but I think Alan Burstyn is really a key part of why the film works really well. It's a very... There's a very naturalistic interplay between her and Linda Blair, who I think also, I think Blair had a rough time of it afterwards and, and her post-exorcist career didn't often take off. But not every child actor is going to be, I don't know, Elijah Wood or Jodie Foster. Yeah. I think she's she's a very likable little child in it and yeah. she works because she's, she's, yeah. she's, you know, she's, she's kind of, she's good at portraying this kind of innocent, uncorrupted child. And I think the relationship between her and Chris is really kind of likable and, you know they're they're a nice family you you genuinely do i think particularly as the film goes on and um uh the character of chris gets more and more uh upset yeah about what's happening to her child she's so good at showing this woman who's just grasping at straws to do anything to help her child yeah. and it's well, she's, she's the human really, window really empathetic yeah. yeah absolutely i think that's a great way of putting it even, even more than karis because i mean everybody you know to a certain extent you can empathize with karis because karis is like the world but karis's concerns are kind of abstract to a certain extent i know his mother died but they're like well the world is lost i have no real sense of purpose it's very existential very whereas... personal yeah yeah well, i mean it... i mean it, it is but it's not necessarily related to the plot like the death of his mother is more kind of a thematic thing than a kind of a a plot driver i'd argue it's it's more like well the world is kind of lost i'm lost and one of the ways of expressing that is that you know my mother died and i feel like i've let her down or been unable to talk to her i don't know if this is if this if his dream is in the theatrical cut but there's the sequence where he's dreaming of his mother and he's trying to in speak to her. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's he's exactly. He's trying to yeah. run across. And the face yeah. appears, the subliminal yeah. image. Which appears several times throughout, which is yeah. really uncomfortable. Like, when you talk about the imagery that kind of came back to you, what was that imagery, actually, Andrew? What was the imagery yeah, as you were trying like to see? Yeah, it's the, the, uh, the, the mother, the girl, the face, um, seeing, like, Karos, um, the, um, um, what's the name of the demon in Nineveh? Um, 
Seeing it, just all, all sorts of um, the imagery. It's not just yeah. That. It's it. It's not. This very rarely um, happens to me where it will be like a um, a slideshow that's too fast. Yeah, you know. I mean, well, that, that's the thing is that like those shots of the Demon Face. Remember, listeners. <laughs> and in I've audio never had medium. this experience. <laughs> yes, these sweet Alice. Yeah. And, and, and very hard to explain in an audio medium. Yeah. But I mean, it, it is like. No, but that's what it, 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 it feels like. It's just kind of like a. a, a, a picture, picture, You know, picture. one of those old oh, uh, the slideshow co- projectors. The carousel. Yeah. yeah the Don Draper pitch. Kind of, you close your eyes and it goes going yeah. like. Click, 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 click. Yeah. I mean, if yeah. anyone's seen Midsummer this year, that's a technique that that the horror directors are still using there's yeah. a lot of um moments in midsummer where you see there's a character who has a death in the family at the start and you see images of yes a dead i don't want to yes. say too much if people haven't seen it but when you see that film you go did i just see that or and it, it adds and this like with the actress it adds this sense of are my senses deceiving me here am i projecting this yeah mm. but it's subliminally there and you're seeing it and not necessarily registering it yeah because i mean that that's the the face as like even as the tests are being conducted on regan as well because it doesn't just occur where you expect it to occur it occurs in places where it you know the film seems to be going down a different track and you'll get this face this white face which is apparently a makeup test against a, a black backdrop <laughs> uh which is quite striking as well but there is this kind of recurring motif of like trying to communicate and again this comes back to the noise and the cacophony where he's trying to shout at his mother across the way at the subway station and she can't hear him or she ignores him and she goes down and he's unable to reach her as well but even things like the detective who's constantly like who's so lonely that he's asking priests to come to the cinema with him um like it's basically a story about like you know mandating it's like you're a man it's the 70s how do you you know how do you find and maintain like a good friendship aside from conducting the occasion like talk about bowling alone (laughs) no that was the 90s (laughs) but but there is there is that element like everybody being doesn't the longer cut now it's years since i've seen it but if memory serves it actually ended with i know the book does it ends with kinderman uh, bringing uh, Dyer, the friend, the priest who's the friend, the cool priest, uh, arranging to go basically on a date to the cinema. Yeah, that's, with that's him. exactly. Um, which so is, it is, which is interesting. It that's the bookend is that the two of them like trying to figure out how to do something together. It's it's, it's um, actually I don't know whether to bring this up. Okay. Is there any homosexual panic in the movie? There's uh, it's it's often been suggested in terms of the reading of Caras by some critics that he might also be grappling with sort of like unresolved you know issues with his own sexuality. There's mm. there's a whole. Is this tr- because of the scene in the bedroom? Is the, it with yeah, the, there's where the kind of shoes. grasps his friend's arm and then kind of like turns away. And there's a there's a whole thread in the book. There's more deep time given to it than in the film where he's yeah. counseling young priests and there's there's these young guys kind of coming in and they're saying you know they're they're really paranoid about being perceived to be you know if their friendships with fellow young priests that it'll be perceived as, as indicating that they have some sort of like uh, homosexual interest in one another so there is a kind of a, a paranoia amongst the, the priest population that Karas is dealing with and maybe also yeah. kind of so it, it has sometimes been suggested as a reading of the film that this is what he's kind of grappling with as well himself yeah well it makes sense in terms of things that the film is preoccupied with I mean even things like the defacement of the virgin mary statue mm. is explicitly sexualized as well you know and do, uh, do, um who is sharon she's the personal assistant to chris yeah okay yeah, and she's also i was she's wondering also a, like in the she didn't book, seem like an employee uh, like an employee i was wondering is she an aunt or is there any suggestion that there is a relationship between, between the, the mother two and her I think it's, it's implied the, that there's one with her and Burke anyway, isn't there? No, I, th- I think that's in... Are you going to marry um, Burke? In uh, Reagan's head. Oh, okay. Yeah, I think she just kind of feels sorry for Burke and he's okay. a director and 
Uh, mm. But it is interesting, I think, that it's an all-female um, household. Yeah. That's, mm. that's an interesting well, that's a, one. There's again, the film's no hot button fears. There's literally no father there, but yeah. then the fathers arrive and save the yeah. day. There's, yeah. yeah, there's a lot of kind of 70s okay. hot buttons. They're like, yeah, uh, feminism, eh? Sexual liberation, women. You women think you can have it all? <laughs> well, we'll show you. Um, yeah. Don't worry, we've got a priest from northern Iraq who's going to come here. Um, interesting enough, those scenes that were shot in northern Iraq, um, they... Freakin was allowed to shoot there on the condition that he actually trained local filmmakers how to use equipment, oh. uh, which is very cool as well. Apparently the temple may have been destroyed by ISIS. Um, oh. It was occupied by ISIS in 2014 and they believe that it was destroyed or at least heavily damaged uh, during fighting as well. Another is... reason not to like ISIS. <laughs> Just one more reason. <laughs> no. um, well, I mean... feel like I've made my mind up about them at this point. <laughs> yeah, I, feel like, I, yeah. I don't think they're good guys. I think they're jerks. Yeah. hot take Quinn yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it's worth noting that when the allies took control sorry well, when America sort of like went into Iraq one of the things when, when Iraq was liberated liberated much yeah. like Crimea was liberated yeah. uh, but one of the things that they um, that they tried to do to, to like bring money and foreign investment into the industry was they suggested having tours given by soldiers of the exorcist kind of um, temple and tombs that's a great yeah. It's a great idea in a country that's you know not embroiled in something close yeah, to a civil not, war. Yeah, yeah maybe, it was maybe cr- not at that time. But <laughs> yeah. I, you know, have you ever seen the 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 Oliver Reed uh, movie that uh, the they devils? made? Was it? Um, was it the Devils? It was during the uh, Iraq Iran War. Um, it was uh, the the I believe the the war between Iran uh, Iraq and Iran was happening as they were shooting the movie in the same place where they were shooting the movie. Did I um, notice? It's uh, <laughs> just a blackout. So, yeah. and, um, you take that in a stride, you've seen a lot. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. But there, there's a documentary... It's almost as bad as working with Cronenberg. <laughs> uh, made about us. Um, and is it... Is it um, is it Saddam Hussein's brother Uday Hussein? Um, his son. His son. Was he? It was he. Um, a guy who was who uh, uh, wanted to kind of produce movies. Or, or he had a lot of interest. Yes, yeah, and he was yeah. very into that sort of like yeah. Right, but yeah. Anyway, there there was there was there was, there was this um, this movie. Anyway, um, I if, if I cannot recall the name of it, but we can we can put it in the show notes. Maybe. Uh, and didn't he die during? Famously during Gladiator, and then they used the CGI. Then. Yes, and yeah. yeah. it must have been shortly before that. Um, was what was Gladiator two thousand? Uh, no, this would have been like nineteen eighty. Yeah, this would have been for the Iran Iraq War. Sorry, this is way back. Oh, yes, I got mixed yeah, up. Sorry yeah, with yeah. the the other. Uh, yeah, yeah. No, no. The, the, this 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 would have been just just after the Iranian Revolution. Um, and yeah, I think they were trying to make some some the uh, Ba'ath uh, party. <laughs> Trying, trying to, trying to, to, to make a movie with uh, British actors in uh, Iraq. Yeah. And look at the north of Ireland and Game of Thrones. It's yeah. worked out very well for us. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. It could have been so. Not that comparing Northern Ireland to Iraq. Uh, <laughs> to know, modern day, yeah, modern day Northern come Ireland. Come along, yeah. uh, <laughs> way, but, um, uh, Just actually, in terms of kind of production, just in terms of stuff, and The Exorcist had a very troubled production. Perhaps not as troubled as the film we'll be talking about next week, but. Um, not only did he fire, not only did freaking fire Bernard Herman, he hired uh, Lalo Schifrin, oh. got him to score it, and then fired him as well when it didn't work out we the way. We could have had a funky exorcist uh, track that would have been brilliant. <laughs> yeah, it would have been very so, like I in the style of Mission that. Impossible. Oh, I kind of, kind of want to see the sort of Mission Impossible credits with Marin and Garris. Anyway, um, but he also there's arguments with the marketing department over like the advertising where he wanted 
the image of Merrin with the light shine down him was something that uh, that Friedkin wanted, where the marketing department wanted something a bit more kind of overt and graphic. Mm-hmm. Um, there was also, when the film was showing, uh, Friedkin exercised incredible control over the print. He would literally call up projection houses that were showing the film and threaten to like retract the print or get the projectionists fired. Um, if they weren't using proper illumination, if they weren't treating the film in the way that he wanted it to be treated. I wish you'd um, talk to the people in my local cinema. Yeah. I well, won't name it, but it might be in the city centre. <laughs> my- <laughs> that doesn't really narrow it down. Take that, Lighthouse. Um, oh, no, Lighthouse, you're yeah, lovely. Yeah, yeah. You're lovely, yeah. Take that, IFI. Nuri Cinema is oh. really dodgy. Yeah. Um, but yeah, and then obviously the level of control that he had where like, the film started out small in the way that they did like during the 70s where you'd have small screenings. So he approved each of the 26 prints individually and then approved 50 and then sort of the prints were sort of taken from that so that he knew all the colours on each of the individual prints which is an astonishing kind of level of control. And when the film was released apparently like there was scalping involved. People were like so eager oh, to Oh buying see tickets and then selling Buying tickets them. and yeah. then selling them Reselling. on because like they were sold out for weeks and weeks in advance the kind of screenings of, of kind of the exorcism. There were queues of people trying to get in on the chance that people didn't show up for example. You know describing it um, Ralph Bailey one of six full uh, nighttime uniform security guards working at the theatre on 2nd Avenue described the opening night as like a riot. Um, they had to cancel the showing. Bailey had been offered bribes as high as $110 at the time to let people jump ahead in the queue, wow. which is absolutely staggering. Um, it's stunning. The first week's gross was a total of $94,000 uh, in one studio, uh, sorry, in one cinema, with attendance of 28,000 people seeing The Exorcist in one New York cinema over the course of a week, which is astounding. Uh, on Saturday, December 29th, Nearly 5,000 people jammed into the theatre paying $16,000 for a single screening. That's like that's an astonishing kind of cultural event right there. The Exorcist, yeah, so The Exorcist turns out to have been a pretty big deal. People have too much money. <laughs> <laughs> paying $50 a ticket or $110 a ticket to go and see The Exorcist. But like that's what I was saying about my folks back in the early 70s, you know, and, and, and when it, them and an uncle, uncle of mine and a load of other people drove up three or four days in a row from Dundalk you know, to, to Dublin at a time where there were no motorways, the roads were awful. Um, so that's like they a. Did that, like, for, they did that three days in a row, and they were, because there were so, such queues. I mean, even here. Did they get to see it each of the three days, or did they, no, they have to go up so they, they, and they come only home? They got to see it on the third time. And had to go home uh, then, had to after. go back home, and it wasn't an easy journey. Like, they didn't buy a ticket to something else showing in the cinema. Do you know, that's they've never said, actually. <laughs> Yeah. That's possible the Savoy at that time was probably just one screen. I, I genuinely don't know. I just know it was definitely the Savoy. I suppose it would have been that magnificent screen one that is now Which sadly... Which is 10 different screens, oh, unfortunately. Why did they do that? It was, anyway, that's yeah, another podcast, it, but it was gorgeous. I've been in the new Savoy and the seats are fine, but the screens are so small and it's... it's it's like a slightly larger living room, basically, is what yeah. you're sitting in, which is kind of sad. Anyway, sorry, that's a very... Still lovely staff and a lovely cinema. Oh, no, it is. It's a shame yeah. that it's gone. Yeah. yeah. Three hours to go to the cinema in Dublin from the Sligo, probably, as well. And it would, But you can check out other things they have in Dublin, like those tomatoes. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, I don't know. What, 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 I wonder what things would have not been in the likes of Sligo or... Uh, or uh, like when we were kids. <laughs> or, or, like or museums. Oh, okay. In the 70s, yeah. I imagine quite a lot. <laughs> quite a lot. <laughs> quite a yeah. lot. When we were kids, it was like museums. Okay, for me, it was museums and kind of wax museums and stuff like that. I remember when we went up to... When we were in secondary school, we'd come up and go to the universities. Mm. 
And like I'd be the only person who would actually go to the university on the open day. Everybody else would just skive off and I don't know, do whatever it is people do. But it was like, yeah, I'll, I'll sneak into Madame, when we had a Madame Tussauds for a little while, or a wax museum or waxworks. I kind of sneak off to that because I was kind of that sort of nerdy, nerdy kid. But look at you now. I'm so <laughs> hip. So hip. You so cool. really moved on from those, uh, <laughs> from those days there. Next week well. live from Dublin Waxworks. <laughs> Um, but yeah, and, and yeah, the cultural footprint of the Exodus as well, as Bernice mentioned, been ripped off so many times, but even like specific, like cinema, like specific countries have their own versions of the Exodus. Like Spain had its own version. Italy produced Beyond the Door. There was Abbey, which was a black exploitation version, which co-starred William Marshall, aka Blackula. Um, <laughs> the Mad Magazine parody, the Exorcist, um, and the Saturday Night Live sketch that we mentioned earlier starring Richard Pryor as well, which aired on December 13th, 1975. So yeah, it, it's kind of culturally ubiquitous. There's no way around The Exorcist. I also saw many horathons ago a Irish short film called The Black Exorcist, <laughs> which was, as you want, would imagine, a disco funk spoof of The Exorcist. Uh, well, I mean, even... even... Wait a second. Was, uh, Saturday Night Live hadn't begun in... in 75. Was it 75, really? Yeah. Was that the first year? Might have been, yeah. Oh, okay. And films in those days used to, like, blockbusters used to hang around for nearly a year or even a couple of years, didn't yeah. they? I mean, they had very long shelf lives, yeah. They were, because then we did, they, they did, were a big deal. Didn't have the market that we had today where it's like each one is sort of like a, you know, a tentpole, 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 week after another. You had films that could hang around for weeks on end. Um, I mean, we'll be talking in a couple of weeks about, like, Gone with the Wind from the 30s, which was a film which was released in 39, but went on to be the highest grossing film of 1940 and of all time. Mm-hmm. But, like, it was beaten in 1939 by The Wizard of Oz, which we'll also be talking about later on. So is there anything else you want to talk about with regards to The Exorcist? Anything that we haven't discussed already? The classic 250 trope of inappropriate smoking from a doctor. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah. We have, we, we, we do, we do, we do have some, um, some in, in, in a And I mean, does the vomit count as food waste, Andrew? That's the question. I, um, <laughs> well, they use pea soup for it, so I think definitely. Well, the production wise. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So yeah, there's de- definite, definite instances of. There Which is, is there's... Pr- probably a good thing given the arteriogram that Freegram wasn't like, can you just make her vomit? Um, and I suppose earlier talking about um, uh, uh, older um, practical special effects, we we forgot to include our um, obligatory Robocop reference. But um, yeah, no, for me, yeah, that that that, that might wrap it up. <laughs> <laughs> Things that have nothing to do with this movie. No, no. Yeah. Uh, and Bernice, is there anything else we haven't discussed already? Um, oh, I think we've kind of hit upon hit upon nearly everything I can I can think of at the moment. Yeah. All right. Oh, also, just very, very quickly mentioned earlier, but just to kind of uh, bring it back, the it never got certified in Ireland and the UK. Uh, so along with Straw Dogs and A Clockwork Orange, which was withdrawn by Kubrick himself, uh, never got broadcast. Never got a certificate from the um, British Film Classification oh, yeah, the Board. The British Film Censor had was particularly concerned that it would be. You probably talked. Guys probably talked about this. You did Slenderman recently, didn't you? Uh, a couple of years yeah. ago. Yeah. Was particularly concerned that it would have a detrimental effect on any young girls who saw it. So ah. it was genuinely, that was the main reason it was banned in the UK and in Ireland as well, because Moral it was thought that particularly teenage girls would, you know, I don't know where we were supposed to be acting it out or something, or, <laughs> but genuinely that was his stated reason. He thought it would be psychologically damaging to, to young women. Well, that's, that kind of makes sense in terms of Clockwork Orange, because that was withdrawn by Kubrick after a series of uh, attacks that the media sort of blamed or credited I to it. Think if, if these movies are any good, 
they're potentially psychotic, psychologically damaging. Yeah, well, if they're if, if horror movies, if a good yeah. a good horror movie like is a film that gets under your skin and has that sort of level of profound effect, I, I prefer to get my psychological damage from film rather than real life. So I'm, you know. <laughs> that makes it in the safe and controlled <laughs> yeah. environment. Yeah. Um, all right then. So I think that about wraps it up. Uh, what we normally do at the end of the podcast is we ask guests to recommend something for listeners. And keep in mind that Halloween's coming up, so maybe if there was something sort of like Halloween or scary related, and Bernice is actually a really great guest to have because you actually you know this stuff inside and out so you're probably able to recommend some stuff even like not to say even for me but stuff i haven't heard of that i want to see kev as well so well, i would say if you're looking for uh, uh an, an exorcist film with a difference i would really recommend um a, a german film called requiem which was released it's a low budget kind of uh, german starkly realist very sad film based on a very infamous real life case that happened in 1975 in bavaria a case that itself i think was uh uh, took something from the exorcist ah. this case of a young woman called Annalise Michelle who beca- believed that she had been possessed by demons um, and over a, a matter of about three months her parents and the local parish priest attempted to perform an exorcism and she died and they were actually prosecuted for it people might be familiar with the film The Exorcism of Emily Rose I was actually about to recommend that it's one actually the yeah. Hollywood version yeah. of that story but Requiem is, is an, an incredibly sad um, nuanced film about a young woman who sort of in a lot of mental distress and how she perceives that in theological terms and um it's a really interesting take on a very familiar uh sort of horror trope dealt with very realistically and uh, i would really recommend requiem mm-hmm. cannot remember the director to save my life off the top of my head but that is definitely the name of the film so and andrew no i'm not going to <laughs> i <I'm not laughs> refuse to take to... part in this yeah no it's a I'm, sham. I'm, not, I'm not no i'm not going to be able to recommend kind of any um halloween uh, related better um kind of uh, recommendations i'll i'll seed my recommendations if anyone wants to recommend too <laughs> yeah uh, i was going to recommend the exorcism emily rose which i quite like just for blending the idea of exorcism and I think it's, uh, a, it's a pretty solid film yeah exorcism and courtroom drama there's a really interesting film called the last exorcist which is uh, it's, it's oh a, this is a found footage one isn't it, it is and it's interesting because it's in the world of Pente- pentecostal protestantism yeah. so it's actually gets away from the whole all exorcist films are really about priests um, and for the first hour or so it's it's fantastic now unfortunately for me at least yeah the i remember the, the final twist is being last 10 yeah, minutes. Yeah. i think it was produced by eli roth I think that's, yeah. Yeah. but um they've decided to jazz it up a bit at the end but the first hour or so is really well done it's really effective and really uncanny again this is sort of like the post 9 11 sort of found footage boom it also stars patrick fabian i think as the exorcist as well who you may know from better call saul oh. caleb landry jones plays the brother as well so the cast has come on really really well i forgot he was in it yeah well yeah. i mean it's a creepy, creepy <laughs> that's it yeah, yeah. so sort of like if you're, if you're looking for somebody vaguely creepy and possibly from the south caleb landry jones uh, is available to work you want on a creepy film. redhead yeah uh, yeah he's... <laughs> um so yeah i would i would kind of recommend that as well with that caveat that the final 10 minutes or so is is yeah. not good Bit of a letdown. it takes a yeah. sort of a really sharp drop but until then it's kind of interesting and it works rather well because i think it actually has good characterization it for is, a film it's, along it's quite those witty as well it's, yeah. it's this guy kind of exposing what he sees as is that he the, the sort of the, the gist of it is that he's been a longtime exorcist yeah. uh, for his little Pentecostal church, but he believes now that it's all a load of rubbish and yeah. he's exposing that's what he says, all of the tricks. Yeah. But then of course What happens? Uh, yeah, something yeah. real might be going on as well. Um and I won't say any more, but it is worth checking out. 
Yeah. And then I think I recommended this a couple of weeks ago on the Sixth Sense podcast, but if we're talking extra related stuff, Extraordinary, the Irish film, which oh, takes uh, really several years. stuff about it. I really loved yeah. it. Yeah. I, really it. I, I, I was thinking, like, having not seen that movie, but having seen the trailer and really wanting to see it, it's like, I want to see this. So maybe I recommend <laughs> other people who want to see this could also see this. Yeah. We can um, see it together. Have yeah, a shared yeah. experience. I lo- uh, the um, the trailer is incredible as well. We've got uh, Black Magic by uh, Jarvis Cocker. Yeah. It made me go back to that album and listen to it like um, all last week pretty much. Yeah. Um, and I, I would recommend that as well. So if people are looking for A month ago. A month ago. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's probably actually available on video demand in the States at the moment. And again, if you are a listener overseas, because we do have international listeners, uh, which we continue to be standard by. Um, but if you are an international listener and want to try something Irish extraordinary, it's probably a very Irish film. Um, Quite, yeah. What's up, Virginia? Um, <laughs> Can I recommend this? Arlington. Well? Um, this is a, a full caveat. This is a film that's directed by a good mate of mine, but um, there was a really good Irish exorcist, exorcist type film called The Devil's Doorway, which was released, I think, eight, two, two years ago, by uh, directed by Ashleen Clark, very okay. talented uh, director um, from the North, like myself. And uh, she, uh, it's set in the Magdalene Laundry, which is in the 60s, which can you think of a better setting I remember there, a film about demonic possession and it's it's a read it's the devil's doorway as well worth seeing i remember there being two as well i think they came out around the same which is again one of those dueling movies like it's weird that you have like you know armageddon and deep impact or the prestige and the illusionist but you also have dueling magdalene laundry mm. sort of like exorcism movies i think around the same time they've been in the news <laughs> <laughs> very topical yeah um, yeah for, for obvious reasons but it's i would definitely recommend it it's it's good stuff all right and if people are looking for a bit more bernice in their lives where can they find you um Currently working on two books that aren't going terribly well. Well, well, no, they're going okay. But um, I, uh, I, uh, I'm on uh, Twitter at at Murph Gothic. Cool. So. Uh, I know you've written um, various books about the American Gothic as well. Yeah, I've written loads of stuff about American horror and Gothic, and yeah, uh, yeah if you my, I'm on. I've got a Trinity web page. People can look me up, and you know. Yeah. And I highly recommend those yeah. books. Actually, they're they're very very good. Um, having cited them and you know stolen, but with credit uh, for some of the stuff that I've written. Um, Oh, um, I'm. Uh, I'm going to delete my Twitter. Uh, I, <laughs> you can use um, on on until November thirty first. I think. I'll, oh, I'll, you said you said a I'll, hard I'll, date. I'll, <laughs> I'll have a I'll have a chance to reinstate it. So just tweet Darren <laughs> and let and, him know and, that you want to. Darren underscore Mooney. Use hashtag a q u i n n i u q a. But don't put an at at the front because it won't work. And you can you can also uh, find find the podcast online. We're available on Stitcher and iTunes and SoundCloud at the two fifty. We'll be back next week actually, where Bernice will be joining us again. We're having a bit of a double feature sandwiching Halloween. It's the only time that we're able to do this where we have a movie that is on the top two fifty that has a sequel on the bottom one hundred because Donnie Darko dropped out earlier in the year. Jaws dropped out in the earlier part of the year. So now we've got The Exorcist this week and next week. Join us as we'll be discussing Exorcist Two: The Heretic. Can't wait. Uh, and joining us for that, uh, Bernice will be coming back. And Phil, say hi, Phil. Hello. Uh, so take it easy, guys. We'll be back next week. Bye. 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 Bye.